You're listening to Oh Yoshi Did It Podcast with Yoshi Obayashi and Lilith Arvai. Hey everyone, this is Yoshi. I'm uh, doing the last podcast in um, New England, Boston tonight, and I'm here with my good friend Ogi Ogas. He, um, I, I, I'm, I'm really happy that a um, few years back I, I, I wrote him my email, reading after his brilliant article in Wall Street Journal, and uh, really um, changed my life because working in the business, we were never taken serious by academic people, and it, it's a very touchy subject because. You know, people think you're pervert, and um, I can—I don't know—just not a normal person to even think about sort of thing. But he did a scientific research in a field I've been neglected for many years, and humanizing people that have been, you know, um, discriminated against. And he—he he wrote a wonderful book called *A Billion Wicked Thought*, and uh, I love the book. And uh, I want to talk more to Professor Ogi Ogas, or Ogi. And um, I hope you guys list uh, conversations tonight. So, Ogi, thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. I've um, been looking forward to this. Um, you, you probably want to have the mic close to you. Okay, thanks. <laughs> so, can you explain to the audience, you know, basically, your what your book is about? Because uh, you know they probably want sure. to hear from you. So, our book is about sexual brain and sexual desire. And what's so unique about it is we are the most comprehensive research into human sexual desires, sexual tastes that's ever been done. Until our research, the only comprehensive scientific study that had ever been done on what do people like, what turns people on, was Alfred Kinsey's studies way back in the 40s and 50s. And to our surprise, everyone's surprise, there hadn't been any research since then just looking at you know what turns men and women on. Uh, and the reason it's hard to find that out is because the only way we can know the truth is by asking people. And if you ask people to report self, what's called self-report surveys in, in, in scientific literature, um, people lie. Uh, you know, they're not going to admit the truth about what turns them on behind closed doors. So there was just no way to get insight into what people were doing. And then all that changed with the internet. With the internet, more than a billion people around the world are obviously getting online. And they're looking at sex, they're searching for sex, they're buying sex, they're talking about sex. So for the first time, we can see what men and women are really doing in the privacy of their homes and their laptops and their desktops. And so we went out and cl- collected a huge amount of online data. We collected searches, we cl- looked at uh, purchase data, we downloaded more than a million erotic stories and analyzed the text. We downloaded more than a million erotic videos and analyzed the content and analyzed the way people tagged them and rated them took all of this together to look for patterns in sexual desires. And in particular, the biggest question was, what are the differences between men and women's sexual tastes, and what are the differences between gay and straight people's sexual tastes? So the truth is, we were the very first scientists to get a clear look at the truth about our sexual nature and our sexual desires. Well, first of all, um, your academic partner, um, his name... Sagadam. Okay, I just want to make sure we get his name out there, too. And... So a couple of things. Why? Why? It, it just seemed like it's obvious after you guys did it, but it wasn't obvious before you did it. Why, why is there like such a long gap in years, and nobody want to touch this subject matter? 
So there's two reasons. First, just from a methodological point of view, from the science point of view, it's just hard to figure out what people are doing because you're pretty much limited by surveys, by asking people. And even if you do a survey, you just don't know if people are telling the truth. And with sex, you can almost certainly be sure that they're not telling the truth. Um, but more than that, it was the politics. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I was rather surprised that nobody had even tried you know, to do something more comprehensive to look at what people turn people on. But even the few surveys that do exist, they ask very general questions mm. about sexual taste. They didn't go into any kind of detail, any kind of specificity. You know, it was, usually the surveys are like, do you like anal sex and, and fellatio and cunnilingus and very general things like that. It wasn't, you know, uh, do you like uh, BBW and uh, transsexuals and, uh, you know, do you like to get peed on and all the different varieties of yeah. sexual tastes that are, that are pretty common on the Internet but uh, didn't turn up in any of the science surveys. And you, and you were telling me, because instinctively, I think, it's got to be religious conservative people who are against these studies, but... Well, it's been a huge change. Back when Alfred Kinsey did his research, you know, 50, 60 years ago, it was the conservatives, uh, mostly uh, Christians, uh, Christian conservatives, um, that really opposed his research and gave him a hard time and eventually led to the end of his research. And when we started our research, we naively expected that once again it was going to be the conservatives that would give us the greatest pushback and, and you know, argue with us the most. And that wasn't true at all. It turned out to be the other side, that in this day and age, it's actually the progressives uh, and people with a more liberal point of view uh, who, who have a politically correct sense of sexuality that are much more likely to jump in and police sex research rather than the conservatives. But what, why are you so hostile to you, it, it, it's because I think we were talking about before we start taping mm -hmm. promoting stereotype. Is that? Yeah. So, uh, I, what our research found fundamentally is that men and women's sexual behaviors online are very, very different. Uh, I think we all know that men and women are different when it comes to sex, but uh, the data that we collected revealed that they're even more different than I think anybody fully realized. And you know, when we started our research, we didn't expect that. Uh, we didn't know that. In fact, you know, when we very when we were very starting the research, we were looking at okay, let's compare the porn, the visual porn that women are looking at versus the visual porn that men are looking at. So we just kind of assumed that it was pretty similar to begin with, and to our surprise, we found out how different it was. But when we talk about it, uh, I think some people on the liberal side of the political spectrum think that we're intentionally promoting stereotypes that our goal is to try to make people seem more different than they are. So we get a lot of pushback that, from people saying, you know, we're exaggerating these differences and that we're acting, uh, that, that we're s trying to push a position that women are uh, much different than men when really they're not. But, uh, you know, we're completely apolitical. Uh, we, 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 and you see that in our data, too. We found some things that are absolutely uh, surprising and that, <laughs> you know, uh, it wouldn't be something that anybody's pushing. Like uh, there's sexual tastes that turned out to be very, very popular that nobody expected and don't match stereotypes at all. Um, but definitely, I think the reason why progressives are so upset is the data shows men and women are very different, and, and it makes people uncomfortable. Yeah, and I don't, I don't understand how they could dispute the numbers. You know, you, you, I mean, did I read it wrong? Uh, Say something about 100 million internet search. So I mean, our data reflects well how did you get a permission that, that was another question um 
Well, what, what do you get the access for them? Um, so we got uh, we use a v- bunch of different kinds of data, mm-hmm. and all well, not all of it. So most of it was publicly available. So for example, we looked at people's web searches, and we got that from two main w- ways. Uh, the first was there's a website uh, search engine called Dogpile. It's a meta search engine, which means if you enter a search into Dogpile, it goes out to Google and Bing and Yahoo and compiles all of the answers. And the reason we used Dogpile is for a while, every search that was entered into their search engine, they posted online. It was like a continuous feed, a stream of searches going by, which is really wonderful to look at. You could see in like real time the consciousness of the world as they searched on, uh, entered searches. Wait, so did you have to contact them to get a permission? No, they just they they put that online, and so we just we just copied oh, it. So we, right? we wrote a, we wrote a program. It's called a scraping program that just round the clock. Yeah. Downloaded each and every search that was entered in the search engine, so they just made it easy for us. Uh, they don't offer that anymore. We got really lucky. I think they had it up for about a year, and that was the exact year that we decided to, to do it. So we collected data off that for an entire year so we could see it you know, through every season. And through it every wasn't month. like you were contact NSA to get their no, information. No, no, not at all. <laughs> and okay. our, our other big search data set uh, was from uh, America Online. Uh, and one of the worst business decisions ever, they released a lot of uh, search histories of their users. So you could see what people searched for day after day for three months. And uh, even though it was a public relations disaster for them, for scientists... It was, it was publicly... They released it intentionally. So they, they thought they were helping out science, which they were. Uh, as a scientist, it, it's a gold mine. But it turned out that they thought they had anonymized the data. But if you see what somebody searched for for three months... Even though if you don't know the person, you may not be able to figure it out, but if you are friends with the person and know the person, there's usually enough clues that if you see somebody's search history, you know you know what? Oh, I know who that person is. So it was possible to identify some of the people in the, in the data, even though they thought they had a So if you tried to do this now, you weren't able to do it. That's right. It, it's all the data that we got is no longer, <laughs> no longer available. We got real lucky. We, we, we started this research at a time when we were able to get access to things that you know, it's funny. It's, it was only three years ago, four years ago that we we started this. Three years ago that we finished, and now the landscape's completely changed. It's so much harder to get data. So I don't know if somebody could do this again. Even though I thought pe- more and more people would be doing this after us, it looks like it's actually harder to do. Um, we also had some Google data. Uh, I'll be honest. We bought it in Russia from a, a black uh, on the black market, so we didn't use it in the book. And we don't, we're not going to publish any results with it, but we used it just to kind of validate our other data. So there was searches that millions of people had entered into Google. Uh, that was basically what we call a validation set to make sure that... Wait, how, how does that work? You knew, you knew, oh, well, obviously, you lived in Russia for a year. I think you were telling me. So yeah. you met someone over there. No, I, I, I did live in Russia, and you know, I, I, you know, I could communicate with Russian, so I kind of know my way around, but... Uh, that, that wasn't how we met this guy. Uh, it's possible. There's a lot of block, There's a lot of data on the black market that you can get. Uh, but was it specifically just for Russian market? No, no. It, it was Amer- It was international searches on Google. Oh wow! It was just. I think if somebody tried to sell that in America, Google would jump on them <laughs> and immediately you know file lawsuits. But you can't go after anybody in Russia. So I think it's a lot easier to buy um, black market data in Russia. So again, we didn't use that in, in anything we published in the book. That was just like a validation set. So the things that we did publish in the book, we kind of just did like a sanity check. Okay, are, are we getting the same results with the Google, with the Google data? And indeed, we did. It, you know, we got the same results in Google that we got on America Online that we got on Dogpile. It, it just sounds like it can be more scientific than that. It just it's the same pattern everywhere you go. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In every country too. So, okay, 
you first of all, this wasn't your original uh, research when you started going to graduate school, right? Yes. Was, because you, I think you had something to do with uh, so I'm, I'm terrorism a, and um, oh. homeland security <laughs> and things like that, right? That's what the Department of Homeland Security funded my graduate uh, degree and funded my dissertation. I'm sure they're not very happy that I ended up studying. But when you were in graduate school, you you were. Um, so I was in graduate school for computational neuroscience. Okay. Basically, studying the brain, the software of the brain. We try to figure out how the software of the brain works. And um, most people in my field study the higher functions of the brain, like memory or language or vision. Right. And when we were getting near graduating, we wanted to study some part of the brain that nobody else had tackled yet. You know, we we're younger guys and wanted a chance to do something new because the fields of vision and memory, they're very crowded with a lot of really smart people. Right. So like, okay, what part of the brain really hasn't been tackled? And we're like, oh gosh, sex. Nobody's touched sex in our field. So was it, was it your uh, academic partner's idea or was it yours? Or it was like it was both of ours. We were sitting around together. We wanted to work on something together and we were like talking, okay, where, where, where can we do some interesting work where we'd have a chance of making you know, a contribution? And then it hit us. It was like, well, sex. You know, people who have, are more established in the field, they're not going to bother with sex because it's too political, it's too dangerous, you know, uh, it's too risky uh, as a career as a career choice. But you know what? You know, we're, we're young. Let's take a chance and see if we can find something. Maybe there's some low-hanging fruit just because everybody's too scared to go check this stuff out. And also, I mean, the deciding moment was when we realized, hey, on the Internet, you know, there's probably some new data people haven't used before. Maybe we can use that. We are used to, in our field, to use large data sets. Uh, it's part of the way what we were trained in is to use large data sets to try to figure out how the brain works. So the idea of using large uh, online behavioral data sets uh, was something that we knew we could handle based on our, our uh, technical background, our science background. And it turned out to be perfect. You know, we hit it at just the right time. There was all this data. Nobody had done it yet. Nobody was thinking about the brain, the sexual brain in these terms. And, uh, you know, we were hoping there'd be low-hanging fruit. And, boy, there was way more... Uh, stuff out there that nobody had even found that, that we would have ever dreamed of. So you, you went to graduate school, then you, ha you must have advisors, right? You eventually told them this is where you want to focus and do research. Well, it was right, it was after we had been approved for graduation. So I see. It, it was basically after we had finished everything. I don't think we had actually had the degrees in our hands yet, but uh, you know, our, we had finished our dissertations and we're just kind of waiting around and, and trying to decide what to do next. I always wanted to write books. So I, I wanted a project that could turn into a book. Yes. But Sai, my partner, um, he was expecting to go into industry. You know, he wanted to get an industry job. A lot of people in our field get jobs on Wall Street or for companies because uh, the kind of uh, modeling of the brain we do can be applied to uh, designing different kinds of software systems as so well. So this is a bigger risk for him, wasn't it? For him, it was because he Pl probably plus. Was, let's be frank; his, his East Indian parents are very conservative. Absolutely true. <laughs> absolutely, he's. I mean, right in, he lives in Bangalore now. So, um, uh, I mean, granted, they have Kama Sutra he's, and he's things in, like that in India. But no, that's a long time ago. Yeah, he's so he's Indian from a typically conservative Indian family, and was going to go have a conservative job in industry. Like uh, there was a number of other Indians in our research program, and they all got jobs. In, uh, in industry, a very safe, you know, decent-paying jobs, and that was a track he was on. And I said, "Hey, no, let's look at porn instead." <laughs> so that was a hard sell, but uh, he was excited by the idea too that you know maybe we're going to find something nobody else has has found before. I'm, I'm glad both of you did it. And so when you started this research, 
your friends, your family, and your colleagues, and, and I guess you have professors that you work. Um, I don't know. I, I, so when, we, we, when they heard what we were going to do, what was their every reaction? Every single one of them said, "Don't do it. This is going to destroy your career." And then uh, it, they, this is including tenured professors that have been around for a long time. Everybody, and we, we, there's some really well-known, famous people in our field, in our department, some of the top people in the world in, in our department, and they were all saying, "Don't." Do this. This is going to kill your career. And they were, everybody said, first of all, what are you going to find on the internet? You're not going to learn anything about sex from the internet. <laughs> right. You know, like, which, in retrospect, right. is like, man, they were out of their minds. They had no idea what they were talking about. And then second, that sounds almost like the guy 100 years ago. Everything that needed to be invented has been already been invented, you yeah. know. And They're like, you know, what are you going to, it's just a bunch of perverts online. You know, how can you learn anything about sexual behavior from looking at the perverts? That, that was like a common view of things, but uh, you have to keep into, take into account, too, that most of these people are in their 50s and 60s, so for them... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go for ahead. them, uh, you know, the internet probably was uh, completely strange and new to them, and they couldn't imagine using... They didn't understand how it could be used uh, in erotic ways the way it actually is. So, you did it anyway? Yes. And how... So, the day you guys decided to go into this field until the day the book is published, how long did it take? Uh, about two years. Two years? Yeah, about two, maybe two and a half from the time we had the idea until the book was published, yeah. And, and for most of us who are not academic, how, how does that work? Who, who paid for this research and? Well, we started off on our own, uh, but then we got, we got lucky and we got a decent sized advance from Penguin, our publisher. And we use that to fund the research. So you could say that Penguin funded our, our sex research. And you know, now that I'm more familiar with the academic field of sex research, I can say it really is hard to get funding to do sex research. And even now, I doubt uh, that we would be able to get funding, uh, no matter what the credentials. It's just it's so hard to get funding for sex research unless you're showing something about sexual health or something that's clearly improving the lives of sexual minorities. If you're just doing basic research, like we just want to find out the sexual how the sexual brain works, or we just want to find out how sexual desire works, uh, there's just no agency out there that's going to give you money for that kind of stuff. So, you while you're working at this, you're a scientist. You know, you don't make any sort of conclusion. But like you were telling me, you're surprised. What were some of the things you're surprising when you were doing the research that that, that shocked you? So at the start of the most general level, and you know, we can drill down to more interesting things, but uh, first, you know, realizing just how different women were. Like, it, it took a while for us to... It's really hard to study women online compared to men. Men are very, very easy to study online when it comes to sex because they're just... They search for sex all the time. They pay for sex. They're all over the data. So it's really easy to get data on what men are doing sexually. So at first, you know, women weren't really showing up in the searches. Women weren't making purchases, so they didn't show up there. So at first, it was like, where, where are the women? You know, they just didn't show up in the data sets we had started out with. So, um, and then we found them. You know, the women created their own communities, uh, which are around romance novels and erotic fiction, uh, in particular fan fiction. And uh, that's where all the women are when it comes to erotic material. And you know, we just didn't realize that at first. And so that was kind of just a shock to realize what women are just using the internet in a completely different way than men are when it comes to sex. So that one, and the other big surprise was gay porn. So I confess 
you know, I really knew nothing about gay sexuality before I started this. I have gay friends, but I, you know, I don't. <laughs> until I started the research, I never asked about their sex lives, and I certainly never looked at gay porn and just uh, had no reason to. But for the research, I looked at tons of it and talked to a lot of gay guys and looked at gay postings, looked at every kind of gay pornography and gay sexuality online the same way I did for straight guys. And what was so remarkable to me as a straight guy is it's just identical. It's exactly the same. I, you cannot distinguish between gay porn and straight porn other than the fact that there's guys in the gay porn and there's women in the, in the straight porn. But, uh, and you might say, oh, well, that's obvious. Porn is porn. But no, if you look at what women are looking at, that's entirely different. You know, erotica for women is very different from porn for men. But what gay dudes do and what straight dudes do online, exactly the same. Same patterns, same searches, same everything. And that was a, a real shocker. And in fact, even though now that we've done it, it just seems obvious. It wasn't reported in the literature. You know, it just that wasn't something that was that should be less than 101 when you're learning about uh, gay erotica. Is, it's identical to straight stuff. And uh, nobody had been talking about that. So it's really remarkable how something as easy as, okay, let's just look at all the porn, see such a basic fact like that that had never been discussed in the scientific literature. It's, you know, and your amazing academic background, me, I went to college by working at a retail store, and growing up, my background, you know, my, my most of my family is pretty religious, so they have a really big hang-up about gay people, and they kind of transferred that to me. Without, I don't really know why I felt those feelings, except that's what I was uh, thought to me, but when I started working in porn store, I became very sympathetic and, and uh, understanding gay people because basically they were coming like a heterosexual guy looking for um, new movies on Friday afternoon. They want to have a movie over the weekend, and after a while, I talked to them like you know it really is like they have these urges, and if they can't get a partner or whatever for the, over the weekend, they just want to supplement with movie over the weekend for uh, you know their needs or whatnot. And after a while, I realized you're right. They want to jerk off like a, like any other guy, and I don't know why they're being picked on for no reason. And um, you know, I, I used to see a lot of those Mustang, Falcon, you know, Bell. I mean, all those uh, top-notch gay mo uh, porn company. But after a while, it just made me realize we all have needs, and they're just dealing with that need, you know. So yeah. I, I yeah, just, just I mean, at, they're looking at guys instead of women, but uh, the kinds of guys they're looking at are there's parallels all the way down the line. So the most popular genre for straight guys is young women. Most popular for gay guys is young guys. Mm -hmm. uh, but straight guys also like overweight women. You know, they're called BBWs. Gay guys like bears, which are big, heavy gay guys. Uh, straight guys like older women. It's called MILFs. And gay, lies, gay guys like older men called DILFs. Uh, just everything that, gay, that straight guys like, there's an equivalent genre uh, for gay guys. Even websites are exactly parallel. There's a bang bus for straight guys, and then there's Bait Bus, which is modeled after it for, for the gay guys. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, the Bait oh. Bus, it, it's, it was one of the first gay sites I looked at. It's got a funny twist. So, you know, Bang Bus guys drive, act like they're driving around California, and they see girls on the side of the road. They get them to get into the van and, and have sex with them in the back of the van while they're driving around. So in Bait Bus, it's the same thing. There's a van driving around <laughs> with hot girls in the van to pick up a guy. So these hot girls that pick up a guy in bait bus and they say hey you know we're gonna have sex with you and the guy thinks oh i bet this is bang bus <laughs> and they said but we're gonna blindfold you so they blindfold the guy and then 
the guy thinks they're performing fellatio on him, and then they rip off the blindfold, and surprise, it's a guy performing fellatio on him. Oh, I heard. I don't <laughs> yeah. It's welcome to bait bus. <laughs> and who hasn't done that? Um, so, oops. <laughs> and another thing that you were talking about fan fiction, I, I didn't know there was a term for it, but it's interesting looking back. When I used to work for Evil Angel, we had many, many women there, and every one of them were always talking about um, Twilight series and on and on and on. And it was really interesting why it never occurred to me that was their version of porno, you know. And yeah. I saw that really funny clip that you did where you're explaining there are certain profession that women are attracted to, fictional characters. Yeah. Can you give some, some of those? Sure. Uh, uh, you know, we looked at more than 10,000 romance novels and truly 95% of them the hero is always what's called an alpha male just a strong powerful leader kings knights rock stars uh, doctors lawyers the most co- the single most common hero right now over the past 10 years is the billionaire yes <laughs> and now it's most famous in 50 shades of gray but you know we did our research before that even came out and even before then billionaire is absolutely the le- it's, for straight guys the most common uh, sort of, I guess you could say the the norm of porn is the busty teenager. The single most common ki- type of uh, erotica f- for men online is is busty teens. Uh, the single most common uh, theme for women is the billionaire, uh, and you find that across erotic stories, romance novels, uh, just about everything. And Fifty Shades of Grey, perfect example of it, but it's. Typical for the genre, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey didn't invent this; it just duplicate, duplicated it. Yeah, that's the one thing about guys: we're not prejudiced against young women with terrible credit report. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't we really don't give a shit as long as your body. In measure. porn, you'll find you know fast food wait- fast food waitresses. You'll find you know students, you know unemployed women. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Absolutely, don't care at all. But uh, in the women's erotica, billionaires, sheiks, millionaires. Presidents, CEOs, uh, the more powerful, the better. And I, I, I know it sounds obvious, but like I don't know why we call women gold digger because I, I think if I was a woman, that's what you should be acting. It just <laughs> seemed like you know it's, it's they're doing a rational decision. Like those are the guys for whatever reason they have qualities that made them very successful. So I think if I was a woman, obviously if I was a young, attractive girl. That is the most rational thing to do. Yet we stigmatize those women. It just seemed like a very I don't, see. I don't, I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I don't know if it's rational. I'd say it's sort of. It's wired into us. Very very ancient mm-hmm. ancient needs. I mean, for because it's basically what is an ideal mate from a biological point of view, from an evolutionary point of view. What's an ideal mate? Well, for a guy, an ideal mate is a young, healthy, fertile woman. Uh, she's going to be bearing the children, so she needs to still be able to bear children and needs to be young healthy and physically fit to have those children. So that's why men are attracted to attractive bodies and young bodies. But for women, it's completely different. What's an ideal man? It's a guy that's going to take care of you, protect you from uh, all the dangers of the world, and that's going to be able to provide for you and that will stick by you as you have your kid. That's why uh, heroes in romance novels and neurotic stories, they always have two <clears throat> things. They've, they're alphas, they're strong leaders who will protect the women but they also have a heart of gold. We call them the coconut. They're hard and tough on the outside and soft and gooey on the inside. <laughs> right. <laughs> the journey of every erotic story or uh, romance novel for women is you have a really strong, tough guy that it, 
the heroine has to work to get at his secret emotional interior. He starts out cold or has a troubled past or he has inner demons that he's hiding. And over the course of the story, the heroine has to elicit his soft side. So one thing a lot of guys misunderstand, they think, oh, women always say they want their guy to be soft and understanding and caring. Well, they only want you to be soft and caring and understanding if you are tough and strong and the leader in alpha. If you're not tough and strong and leader in alpha, then they don't really care if you're soft and uh, kind and, and sensitive or not. They only want that if you are strong. And they also, the other thing that guys don't realize, women want to feel like they have to work to get that out of you. Right. If you just open up immediately, uh, that, that never happens in women's erotica, in the women's erotic fantasies. They want to feel like they were the ones that able, were able to elicit feelings from this man who was otherwise unwilling to, to share the feelings. So, and, it, it, and it seems like, I'm sure, of course I'm generalized, but those women don't have a problem if the guy is horrible to everyone except to them, correct? Exactly right. Exactly and, right. And, and then, because um, I always find it interesting because this is some hacky joke that comedians do, but, you know, Richard Ramirez recently died, and it was always interesting when I was a kid. She, he got so many letters from women want to be with him. And here's this guy murdering women. He did. He raped a grandmother and, you know, raped her, then raped her. I mean, and raped her and killed her. And what's the deal with that? Because they're serial killers. Why one did they make exception to that? One of the things we looked at in our research is online you can find, you know, the sites devoted to allowing women to contact, you know, violent criminals. <coughs> so we analyzed a lot of that. And yes, uh, violent criminals. Richard Ramirez was one of the guys we actually looked at. Um, gets lots of letters nowadays gets emails uh, from women that very find them very sexually attractive or in love with them and some of these guys even managed to get visits and, and uh, I know I forgot the name of the guy but there was even one murderer that married a woman while he was in prison and got to have sex with her and you know she was completely in love with him and it shows I, mean, I guess this is just deeply wired into women's brains that you know no matter how awful a guy is. In fact, the fact that he is so awful is part of the turn-on. And when you read them, they are sure that they have soft insides that only they have access to. So I that's see. part of it. They, they say, oh, you know, yes, I know he did these bad things, but on the inside, you know, he's really loving and caring, and, and I see that loving and caring side. So it's just how the women's mind works. There was a woman in Orange County like two, three years ago. She, while her husband was sleeping, she cut his uh, penis off and playing blender and straight up in pieces, <laughs> she got arrested. Believe me, there was not a one single guy at the oh. core hoping to, you know, find a <laughs> sweet spot in her heart. I'm just like, you got to be out of your fucking mind, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I, you know, if I had to compare, I'd say women's tendency. So obviously, first we'll say not every woman is in love with serial killers. No, of, co of course. But there's a potential there, and a lot of women are, and. It's kind of equivalent to a lot of guys are interested in underage women, you know, and some guys act on it. And it's probably a similar thing. It's just we both have these things wired into us and makes us prone to some behavior that these days is probably not the wisest behavior. Maybe, you know, 10,000 years ago, if you were attracted to uh, a crazed killer, he might be a good person to have by your side, in, in, you know, at a time when everybody around you is a killer and having the one that's the best killer was. That might not have been a bad instinct to have, uh, but in this world, it's not. And same for guys. You know, uh, there probably was a time when being attracted to very young women was, you know, beneficial. You're going to get access to 
uh, a young, healthy body the moment it's ready for it to be fertile. But uh, in today's world, uh, you know, these these impulses aren't uh, aren't adaptive anymore. Um, I want to give one example to move on to another thing, but I I was trying to figure out why that main character from Twilight was so popular. I mean, just every woman yes. at Evil Angel Porno Company they they would much prefer to have well, what's his name, the vampire, the main character. Edward Cullen. Yeah. They could care less about all the male talent in yeah. porno business, but it was like, uh, even before the movie was released, it was just like mad, you know, so, the, their, their design. So what is it about him that was so attractive to women? So in our book, we analyze the things, we call them cues, the specific things that turn women on, and turn men on. We looked at cues, men's cues and women's cues, things that are wired into our brain that have some neural basis. And we showed how par- the genre of paranormal romance, like Twilight's one of the best examples, but there's tons and tons of paranormal romance books. It satisfies women's cues in a really powerful way that just wasn't possible before. And it's sort of like the Oreo cheesecake of uh, <laughs> sexual erotica. Yes. <laughs> and just like the way Oreo cheesecake just, it completely uh, activates all of our uh, deeply wired uh, pleasure centers in our, in our taste system. Uh, paranormal romance does that too. Uh, so Ever Cullen, he's an alpha. Uh, he's powerful, super strong. Protects the women. He's obsessed with protecting Bella, and he protects her from both bullies. He always beats up the bullies that attack her or threaten her, and he protects her against supernatural beings. He always lusts after her. Now this is a big cue for women. Women want to feel desired, and they want to feel uh, the lust of a man. Now he literally lusts after her blood. He thinks her blood spell, smells very special in the book. Uh, it's something unique about her blood, so he's forever wants to drink her blood. But also part of the fantasy, he always proves his love by holding off. So a woman wants to feel the sexual desire of a man, but she, he doesn't, she doesn't want him to act on it right away. He wants to show that he's willing to hold off, uh, respect it. So uh, Edward Cullen's always showing that he's lusting after her, but not uh, going forward with it. Uh, He's very old. He's more than, uh, he's like, I think, a century old because he's an immortal vampire. So he has all the experience and confidence and maturity that women are attracted to. But he's in the body of a hot teenage guy. So, uh, again, it's an impossible thing in the real world, but it combines the things that women do like attractive young guys. They just want them to be mature and experienced. You know, guys don't care. If a girl can be young and immature, emotionally mature, it doesn't matter. Still be sexually attractive. and they're impeccably dressed as well. That's and, right. And another thing, too, is women are turned on by men who are desired by their women. So unlike men, women really care about what other women think. Absolutely. Yeah. So if, if a lot of women like a guy, that alone makes the guy more attractive. <clears throat> uh, and that's one reason why married men are so much more attractive. You're, you're it's like you already have a job, so if you're looking for another job, you know, it, it, it seems like people with already a job have an easier time finding another job, whereas if you don't have a job... If you're a single guy, you don't have any woman. Absolutely true. You hear women say the best men are always taken. It's, be, it's by definition, the, a man is better if he's already taken. If a man's alone, well, then this question, well, why is he alone? You know, is there something wrong with him? Well, how come the women's, women like him? You know, a guy would be delighted to find some hot woman who's single with no other, nobody else interested, and that would make a guy uh, completely happy. But for a woman, it sets off some alarm bells. Um, so in the book, Edward Cullen is beloved, lusted after by all the girls of the high school. All the girls want Edward Cullen, and he ignores all of them except for Bella. So it's part of that story, too. And then one of the most interesting things about paranormal romance, and Edward Cullen in particular, is 
one thing that really turns women on are submissive fantasies, seduction fantasies, and I'll even say rape fantasies. Uh, we found that in our data set that so many erotic stories written by women, so many erotic fantasies authored by women feature rape or variations of rape. However, at the same time, in today's age, it's very, very politically incorrect to talk about rape fantasies or to suggest that you're turned on by this idea. So romance novels in the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s, they all featured rape, even rape by the hero. The hero would rape the, the yeah. heroine early in the novel, and then gradually she'd fall in love with him. Well, you can't do that now. But women still want that fantasy. So how do they do it? Well, in paranormal romance, they use euphemisms. And vampires is the perfect way. So what does a vampire do? He grabs you and he penetrates you with his fangs and he drinks your blood. And if you read scenes in paranormal romance about vampires attacking the women, it's a rape scene. You know, it's written in the same language that used to be used in the rape scene, but now it's just a vampire sucking the blood. So you get the emotionality out of it. You get the, the same feel, but you can still be politically correct and say, you know what, it's not rape, it's just a vampire sucking, <laughs> sucking her blood. And another example is, uh, there's so many variations of this. Uh, in the Anita Blake novels, another par- set of paranormal romance novels, the heroine is an evil wizard casts a spell on her against her will that makes her really, really horny. And after the spell, she goes through periods where she can't control herself and she has to have wild sex with whoever's close by. So again, it, it feels and reads like a rape scene that he's taking advantage of her this way. But by saying, oh, it's an evil wizard casting a spell, it gets around sort of those social barriers, the political barriers about it being a rape scene. Werewolf, same thing, once again. Uh, a werewolf can't help himself. You know, He grabs and might bite the woman or, or just uh, in a savage, bestial way, take her. Uh, yet again, have a way to write a rape scene without it actually being rape. So, boy, I got to be careful how I, I'm going <laughs> to phrase this. So while you're doing research, it's, it's coming to be apparent that this is this is the fact with the rape stuff, right? But well, as you know, in colleges and universities, politically correct stuff is very, very strong. So, I mean, what was the conversation well, between... Well, I mean, that's, and it should be. I mean, it, there's a huge, mm. you know, vast difference between having a fantasy of this and living it out. I mean, one's consensual, one's non-consensual. I mean, you're consenting to have this fantasy. It's your decision to have this <laughs> fantasy, but... I think if you ask any woman, every single woman would say, no, I don't want this in real life. I just, you know, I'm turned on by the fantasy of it. Uh, you know, I want to read about it in a romance novel, an erotic story, but mm-hmm. it's not something I want to uh, experience in the real world. But when you first brought this up, I'm sure somebody must complain to you, right? Uh, well, no? we weren't the first to discover this. There's a lot of literature mm-hmm. on rape fantasies, but actually what we did, so... Uh, there's been lots of evidence in the scientific literature that rape fantasies are very prevalent among women. Um, but usually the way it was explained is, oh, the rape fantasies are usually attractive men who are forcefully seducing the women. So it's, uh, it would be like getting raped by you know, Richard Gere or, or uh, 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 Tom Cruise, somebody like that, you know, at a club or something, taking you aside and, and you know passionately making out with you. It wasn't outright rape, except when we looked at our data, yeah, there's plenty of examples of, I guess you could call that forceful seduction, but there's also there's some brutal <laughs> some brutal graphic descriptions of rape, too, uh, by unattractive guys, by mean guys, ugly guys, uh, you name it. It's, it's, it's part of the fantasy, too. 
I, I don't know. If I could be wrong, but Don Juan, it's one. I, I want to make real clear that uh, this does not mean women want to be raped. No, no, no. I'm making sure clear. I'm very clear. But I remember. I think Mozart had an opera called Don Juan, if I remember right. And basically, if I remember right, there was a graphic rape scene, but they were able to justify that because at the end of it, the rapists are killed and sent to hell. <laughs> but it was like. That was their way of presenting rape on stage while doing their opera, which is, you know, tantalizing. I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what to. It's. I mean, what, what, what's at the core of the fantasy is submitting to a stronger force. I mean, that's the that's the idea. <clears throat> that's the feeling. So it's not rape. That's the turn on. It's that being taken by a by a powerful force. That's why it's possible to write using paranormal romance. You know other variations, and it's still being erotic, arousing, even though it's not actually rape. It's just the feeling a vampire. Yeah, it's not a real thing. You. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's not the rape that's a turn on. It's just being overpowered by a force. You know, a strong sexual force. And okay, so this this been around this knowledge been around for a while. So you you didn't have a. So we weren't the first to point this out, but we have you know. Most comprehensive data to show this is indeed the case across every culture. You know, you find this in Japan and in India, you know, European countries, Brazil, Russia, everywhere we looked, uh, you find the same. And the mirror image for guys, guys like, for the most part, like uh, domination uh, fantasies. You know, there's, there's more creativity in erotica when it comes to domination and submission than anything else. And I don't mean whips and chains and leather, I just mean. Different variations on the theme of uh, a dominant man and a submissive woman. So, like paranormal romance would be one of these creative variations. But you know, for guys' porn, there's drunk girl porn, there's drugged girl porn, there's hypnotized girl porn, there's groped on the bus porn, there's sleep porn. Guys having girls with sex. Oh, that, that the sleep one is really suspicious. Even for me, <laughs> I worked on. There's one called Sleep Creep, and then it's basically girls have just passed out and they're having sex. And I understand the, uh, the the appeal to a guy, but the whole time watching, like that's a rape. I mean, <laughs> yeah. how, how, how else? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not. I'm not laughing because it's, it's funny. But like, how 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 they get away that, with that? You know, know? It's, it's so what's so? Ironic. I know it's, it's a fake. Yeah, but, it's fake. Of course, it's all staged. But what, what's ironic, of course, is guys are <laughs> indulging in the same fantasy from the other side. You find the very similar thing in women's erotic stories and women's romance, but you know, of course, it's written by women and for women. But you know, understandably, women see this kind of porn and get very scared. They get very uncomfortable. They think it's teaching men, you know, that uh, uh, to want violent sex. And it's the truth is, it's just the mirror image of what turns them on too. I mean, this is this is probably the most important point from our research. So, men and women's sexual tastes are completely different. They're worlds apart, except for one thing. There's one place where men's tastes and women's tastes completely intersect and overlap. And that's these domination and submission fantasies. Um, <clears throat> we both are turned on by role-playing or acting out dominant roles, submissive role, assertive role, receptive role. Um, and you find the most creativity in that, the most inventiveness in that, and that's something that turns us both on. Uh, when we look at the other person's version of it, sometimes it seems a little disconcerting. I know for women, they're... Uh, understandably very scared when they see men looking at this stuff and getting turned on uh, and when guys read women's variations it seems like it has a way too many emotions to ever be uh, arousing I can tell you as a guy when you know I read 
uh, hundreds and hundreds of erotic stories written by women uh, and dozens of uh, romance novels too as part of the research uh, in addition to downloading and analyzing it and you know to me it's usually very boring it's just they go on and on about the feelings and the sex scenes and it's just like where's the sex you know there's, there's where's the details of the sex it's just mm-hmm. endless describing what's in the person's mind as this is happening or that's happening so uh, we each have our own different variant of it, but at the bottom, it's the excitement of, you know, being forcefully seduced by a strong, stronger man and a woman, choosing to relent to, uh, to, to accept that. It's interesting. I've seen plenty of porn through Evil Angel where guys sleeping and two women are taking advantage of, and not once have a guy ever complained about that. You know, <laughs> so, huh? I, 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 I remember. One of the questions you always ask, and it's surprising to me that, um, well, surprising for the audience, which is four body parts that is most popular among men's, you know, internet search. Would you mind explain that to everyone? Oh, sure. I mean, I got it right, (laughs) unfortunately. So it turns out there's four pieces of anatomy that men search for in every country in the world. So we were interested, okay, what are the cultural variations on anatomical interests? And it turned out there was four interests that are the same every country we looked at. And those are breasts, no surprise, butts, no surprise, feet, which may surprise some people that it is, does seem to be a biological basis for feet. I can talk about that in a moment. But the fourth one was a big surprise, and that's the penis. Straight guys everywhere really want to look at penises. In fact, guys search for penises just as often as they search for vaginas. And you might wonder, what are you talking about? Uh, what's going on? So it's not that guys want to look at a picture of just a penis and nothing else. They want the woman to be there. But they want to look at a penis with a woman's reaction to it, especially large penises. So uh, in fact, large penis pornography is one of the most popular genres of pornography everywhere uh, yes. in every country, <clears throat> which you probably know from working in, sure. in the industry. And uh, you know, women are puzzled. Uh, it's interesting. Every time women hear this, the first thing they say is, "Oh, guys are looking because they want to compare what other guys have to themselves," which I always thought shows with women. I guess women are checking out other women to compare other women's bodies yeah. to themselves. But no, guys aren't doing that. That's, they're not checking out a guy's package to compare to their own. What they're looking at is the woman's reaction. So what we analyzed is, you know, how the penis appears in all the different pornography, and it's always about the woman's reaction. A woman wants to. They want the woman to marvel at the penis, to look upon it with awe or surprise or shock or fear or anger or some kind of, an, some kind of reaction. Uh, and it's that reaction that, that the guys are looking for. Is but what, 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 I mean, what are, they look, what are we looking for? I mean, So uh, it's too bad. I, I have slides. When I give a talk about this, I show slides. Mm. And I think there's, an, again, a deep biological basis for this. If you look at all the other primates, monkeys, chimpanzees, gorillas. The penis is a very prominent social tool, social indicator in all of these species. And I have slides that shows the, pe- the way males use their penises and all these other ones. And they show their penises. They're always showing their penises to indicate sex, to indicate aggression, to mark territory, to indicate social dominance. And so the males are always checking out other guys' penises to, to learn things about it. So. If all the other primates have it, there's probably still some vestigial basis for their. Uh, this also explains why guys love to show their penis. One thing we found in our data too is that men 
love to show their penis online. Uh, on webcam sites, uh, for example, Chat Roulette, which is a, basically a free-for-all webcam site, just so many penises. If you just kind of go randomly look at what people have their webcam set to, it's... But they, they show from waist down. That's the whole idea, that's right? right? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Uh, because last 10 years, and I, th- I read one of your articles, you were talking about Brett Favre showing his penis through uh, text messaging. Yes. And, uh, um, that, why am I forgetting the politician from you? Uh, Anthony... Weber. Yeah, Weiner. Weiner. Yeah. yeah. And uh, oh, there's so many. Uh, it's, it's not to try to humiliate the ladies, right? It, right. It, it, it's, it's, not it's an impulse, and mm-hmm. it's, it's rooted in this. I, I think all primates have it, and I think we have it too. And Do you think we've been harsh to those two people? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, so what, what I say about it is it's an urge like... Because, because I'm, I'm sorry to uh, interrupt. It just seemed like we're trying to, sh- trying to shame them for yeah. doing something that's biologically normal. So my feeling is it's not a moral thing. We, we react to it like it's, it's, a, it's a moral failing. It's more like if somebody farts. Mm-hmm. We all have flatulence. It's part of our biological constitution. But we can control it, you know, or a sneeze or, yes. or a belch. We all have to belch from time to time, but we can control it. And when you sneeze, you can cover your mouth. So we have these impulses, but we can control them. So if somebody sneezes or, or farts, we don't consider it a moral failing and saying that they've done something unethical or wrong. You know, we just say, man, you better have some better self-control. And yes. I think that's the way we actually react to is like, okay, you know, it's not a moral problem. It's just you need some better impulse control. And so... You've done all the studies. I got the feeling you're you're more understanding people. You know, you you, you don't strike. Well, you never. You probably wasn't a judgmental person to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, these religious impulse that people have, obviously, it's not compatible to who we are. Yeah. Do you do you think in some ways the book is helping people to maybe change that harsh attitude that we have against these? Well, what what, what our book shows for the first time in the history of science is which sexual interests are common and which ones are rare. We just never knew. You know, and it turned out that so many interests that we thought were deviant or rare or atypical, even science thought this. Some, some <coughs> interests that scientists for a long time have thought were rare uh, turned out to not be rare at all. And I think that's what's changing uh, people's attitudes. Certainly, I know sex therapists. Sex therapists have been strong, responding very favorably to our book. Is that, is that right? Okay. Yeah, and I just gave a, a keynote address to a conference of sex therapists. And but what about the academic world? Are, are they? Yeah, we've, we've we've been getting a very positive. Oh, so uh, it's changing. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I mean, just there was no good data on on what was common and what was rare. And now you can see, you know, the things that are. I mean, some of them are very disconcerting. Some of the most popular interests, I think, are things that. A lot of people wish weren't so popular, um, but we can at least see what's prevalent. You know what's common now. Now, who make decisions like what sex is deviant and it's not? I mean, I don't. It's pedophilia. I mean, this is something that people always ask me, and I just wonder. I, I'm 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 seeing. 14, 15, 16, 17 year girls, and some girls develop more than other, and I I feel like wow that. You know these horrible thoughts that's pop in my head, but I don't I don't do anything beyond that. But is it really that wrong to even have those yeah, impulses? So I'd have to say from our data that I'd have a very difficult time calling that interest deviant. Now acting on it is illegal and mm-hmm. <clears throat> and immoral. I'd say acting on it illegal and immoral. 
but just having that urge, that's a natural urge, at least based on the data. I mean, the most common age that guys search for uh, online for women, it's awful, but it's 13. 13 is the single most common age that guys look for when they're looking for erotica. 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds, also huge numbers. So when guys are looking, you know, searching for stuff online. Wait, is it 13 because that's the first time you could say the word teen in it? Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe. I don't, know. I don't know why that is. That was a shock to us. So we looked at, like, you can look at, you know, hot 16-year-olds. Also, I mean, to be honest, one reason you can look for a specific age is because it might be hard to find that age. So guys don't search for 21-year-olds that often because most porn contains 21-year-olds, for example. Right. So you might look for 18-year-olds. So 18 is very popular. So, uh, But just a huge number of people searching for 13-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds. And teen porn is the most popular uh, kind of porn out there in terms of just the sheer numbers. So definitely guys skew young. They're looking for younger bodies. Um, and let me say, too, they're looking for women that, have go- that are young but have gone through puberty. Uh, uh, for sure. That, that's, that's, that's the thing that guys are looking I mean, for. If, if you talk to religious people, especially if you look at the Bible, I'm, I'm pretty sure they consider any girl a woman after she has her first period. Yeah, so, so yeah. What, and what guys are searching for mostly are young women who have gone through puberty. Now, there are guys that are turned on by prepudescent women and even younger children. That's rare enough that it's unusual. Uh, it's unusual to be interested in younger than 13. That doesn't come up that often in, in our data. But uh, hugely common to look for women uh, age 14 to 18, and definitely 18, 19-year-olds, the most single most popular thing there are. So um, illegal and wrong, but is there something wrong in these people's brains? Are, are they you know, neurally deviant? It's really hard to come to that conclusion when you see just the prevalence of this across the world. So think about, uh, thinking about it, of young girls, thinking about rape fantasy, you wouldn't consider that deviant just, just thinking about it, right? That's that, right. That, that, okay. Obviously, we all agree. It's all impulse control. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we can't control what turns us on, you know, but we can control what we act, if we act on it or not. I mean, the great thing I think about <clears throat> all this internet erotica is it allows us to explore these tastes without harming anybody. And, you know, if something turns you on, you can find some kind of erotica for it online, and you can use that and get your satisfaction without ever having to act on it in the real world. And that's the whole point of erotica. And I think we had this conversation before because, this, and I'm I'm very serious because I've said this in other podcasts. I feel really bad for any man born and be attractive to young kids, especially like boys like ten years and younger. I mean, you were just wired like that. And I, I was when I was in Germany, I was talking to a couple of my um, porno friends, and, and I was uh, shocked to find out in the states, you know, if you have a therapist, and you, you you tell them you 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 abuse, molest a young uh, young kid, they have a moral obligation to contact authority and you know get you arrested. But in Germany, that's not the case. In fact, because they know for a fact they're not going to report them to authority, the pedophiles are more inclined to get help in Germany. And I, I um, it's 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 really hard to be sympathetic to pedophiles, but it just seems like if you're born with that, uh, what, I, 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 I can I, feel sympathy if you're born with it and you've never acted on it. Like yes. If, if, if I mean, just like you said, what a what a horrible life! You didn't do anything. You just you're born, born like wired that, yeah. this this way, yeah. and you have to 
you know, you can't ever act on your on your feelings. What a what a terrible life that must be. And in that article, they were saying uh, there was a particular um, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but he had a head injury where it hit I don't know what part of the brain. Ever since that accident, he was attracted to the young boys. And so, what what does that tell you? Like, there's certain body parts. I mean, a brain part that has something to do with being attracted to boys, right? I mean, yeah. So, is it in theory if you're if you're if you're a pedophile, is it possible you could just what do you what would you do? Remove well, that part, or I mean, sexual taste has proven to be notoriously difficult to change. I mean, the best example is. But I thought, I thought the women change. I thought it was easier for women to change their taste. Yeah, women can change their taste. Yeah. Okay. So okay. Yeah, but men, after after age twenty one, twenty three, you're, you're pretty much set for the rest of your you're life. Set for the rest of your life. You can change it when you're a teenager. So the way the guy's sexual brain works is you get imprinted on different sexual tastes when you're young, some, somewhere between the ages of eleven and twenty one, and but after that, that's it. That's your taste for life. It doesn't. The guys don't change very much. And, that, and that's the example I was going to give is uh, trying to turn gay people straight. You know, it doesn't work. You know, we tried for decades to turn gay people straight, and you know now it's considered unethical. Um, but there's no reason to expect that trying to make a person like kids not like kids anymore is going to be any more successful. I see. But what, what do you, then? What do you do in that situation? I'm just curious. What, just have a tough life. Oh. And, and and why is it that women it's it's not set like by twenty one? Why why is it that they're able to? Why are they so flexible with their taste? So biologically, the reason is, whereas men's, they, like we talked about earlier, what's the ideal mate? <clears throat> so, for a man, the ideal mate is young, healthy female. That doesn't change. A young, healthy female is the same now as it was ten thousand years ago. It's the same in Japan as it is in China. Uh, you know, it's a, a woman who's physically healthy, you know, and can bear children. And the visual signs of that are stable across eras and, and locations and cultures. So it's in the guy's interest to figure out, okay, that's what a healthy woman looks like. I'm going to never change from that because that's, that's not going to change. But for women looking for an ideal guy, well, an ideal guy does change from time and time and era to era and culture to culture. You know, in some cultures, a doctor might have a high social status and be able to provide. But there's plenty of cultures where the doctor is you know, not much better than a barber or a butcher. In, in Asia, for sure, doctors, because it's not just that income, but the social status and prestige that go with that were. Right. You, know, you could have a garbage collector that make a million dollars a year because he owned a garbage company. Right. They would still pick doctor that makes hundred thousand a year because it's it's a combination of wealth and social status that garbage men will never have. Another great example is maybe a drug dealer. So if you live uh, in a suburban middle class neighborhood, you know a woman would not want to date, you know, some rough and tumble drug dealer from the inner city. But if you're a young woman in the inner city, maybe a drug dealer who's got money, who's strong, who's uh, a powerful leader. Maybe he is a good mate. That he, you know, he could protect you and provide for you in that environment. So a woman's needs to be adaptive in figuring out what's the best guy in this milieu, in this social environment, to take care of me. I see. And, and, the cha- and it changes over a woman's life too. You know what? 
younger women tend to go for bad boys a little more, you know, a little more, more rough and tumble guys. And as they get older, they definitely more towards, they want the money and the stability. Uh, so women's sexual tastes change over the lifetime uh, too, in a way, because they're adapting to their life situation in a way that guys don't. Um, oh, you know, I, I definitely want to bring this up because people think I'm joking. So transsexual stuff, you know, that's something that I specialize in Evil Angel too. And when I started working at the retail store in Evil Angel, I, I thought it was a joke. I thought this is just like deviant group of people. They're just like sick individuals. And I realized after a while, it's so much more popular than boy-girl porn. Yeah. And this has something to do with the four popular body part. Yes. Because it gives certain sexual cues. Can you explain to people why tr transsexuals? This is one of our most interesting discoveries. <clears throat> and... Uh, definitely one of the you know, most fascinating things we uncovered. So first, like you said, it turns out that shemale porn uh, is incredibly popular all around the world. So we call it shemale porn, you know, not transsexual porn, because it applies to, it's the idea of portraying a female body with a penis. And it's not always transsexual. First, a lot of it's animation. Right. Uh, and sometimes you can even do it with an actual woman with a prosthetic penis. Will give the same effect, and you'll find that important too. Right, because I think one of the things you, uh, if you're, I think you were in a book or in a magazine article, you were suggesting if, if you're a consultant for porn business, that's like one of the a new fetish thing that will really do well. And I think I think you're right because yeah. they're really popping up in. It's really popular in Japan. Yes. Yeah, everywhere, and so. So first of all, amazingly popular, one of the most popular genres of, of porn <clears throat> for men everywhere. The numbers astounded us. And what's going on there? A big surprise, because everybody thought that was rare and deviant and, 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 and strange. And why are, why are straight guys, the audience for this is heterosexual men, why are straight guys looking at women with penises? You know, what, what's this about? So uh, we d at first we didn't know, we had no idea. But after we did our research, we think it's because <coughs> Well, we showed how the penis is extremely prevalent in pornography. The guys want there to be a penis prominent in their porn. They want it to be a big penis prominent in their porn. And because that seems to be a sexual cue for men, the shemale porn combines all the popular cues for men. And you can see this most clearly in animation. So in animation, you have the freedom to create the shemale exactly as you want her to appear. Except that they're more perfect than the real thing. That's right. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're perfect. You're an artist, so you can just, you, don't, you can defy gravity, you can defy uh, physics. Big, per, a big, perfect, natural tits, perfect round ass, perfect feet, beautiful face, and it, it just has something special between the legs. Exactly. And exactly. It, it, young, voluptuous girls with gigantic penises. Yes. And that's what you find. And it's, it's all the cues. I mean, it's you know, again, I have a slide and I show like the most common kinds of porn, and you put it together and you get and you get the shemales. So, guys that like shemales, and, and if you talk to guys that like it, but they don't consider themselves gay, right? No, not at all. If you talk to them, they're usually baffled themselves. They say, you know, I don't really understand it. You know, they usually they feel some shame about us and discomfort. They don't understand what's going on. Like, look, I'm not gay. I don't want to. I'm not attracted to men, but this really turns me on. I get, you know, and they usually say something like, "There's just something." Strange. It's it's dizzying. It's like an optical illusion. I mean, so I studied optical illusion. Did some research on them in my uh, graduate program in computational neuroscience. And when people look at optical illusions, it's a similar effect. It's they say I don't really understand it. It's just I, 
it's like something magical is happening. I can't, I can't put a finger on it. And they, guys talking about their, what they like about shima porn often say very similar things. I think it's because the brain's just processing this and producing this effect and they don't know why. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, most men that look at this stuff, they're not looking at gay porn too. They're just looking at these female porn. And I can't remember one of the biggest automobile company in Italy, that the, the, the son of the billionaire, he was caught with a couple of trannies in Rome like four or five years. It was a big article in Vanity Fair. And and even in the Greek mythology, Tiresias, I remember T.S. Eliot was talking about him, and they were saying he was wise. He was so wise that even gods respected him because he did something where Zeus punished him and turned him into a woman for like seven, eight years. Right. And, and they were basically saying he has a knowledge of both men and women. And I think... For me, I, I didn't understand that the science behind it, and I'm glad you were explaining, but the reason I thought working in the adult business for so many years, I just thought, um, I have a couple of friends that they're really into tranny, but it's it just that I feel like we're so ashamed about our sexual needs, and, and, and this is something I find in working in an adult video store. Guys who come in, they have these sexual needs, but they can't talk to their wife and girlfriend. They're just afraid if they talk about it, they might get rejected, or their wife or girlfriend think they're weirdos, so the only people they could really talk to is the, the scumbag like myself working behind the <laughs> counter at the, at the porno shop. But my, my feeling about the whole transsexual thing is they're born man, but they have this feminine side to them. So they also know the, the needs that every man have. So they're not going to judge us. And there's something comforting about trannies. And like all the stereotype of trannies, like they're, they're going to rape you or whatever. But I talked to a lot of them. They're they're. I never had a problem. They're very, very sweet. And if you show respect, and, and, and I'm not an anthropologist, but a lot of the shemales are really respected throughout the world, which is odd. Even in places like Iran, nothing yeah. in Quran said against them. And in India, you bring a couple of transsexual for Good weddings. For your wedding, yeah. Yeah, and like in, in Japan too. And like for some reason, they're really, really respected by yeah religious group. And one of the puzzling the transsexual stuff, you said something about Mona Lisa's painting, and I, I tried to read it over. And over. I, it was really confusing to me. Can you explain why we stare at it so much? Because I've seen it in person. It was such a small painting, but I, sure. couldn't, stop, I, I couldn't stop looking at it. I, I use the Mona Lisa as an example of an optical illusion that shows a similar effect. as. But you call it erotical? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I call the, the shemale uh, porn is an erotical illusion mm-hmm. as an analogy to the the brain's processing it in a similar way they process optical illusions. The reason I talk about the Mona Lisa is Mona Lisa's smile famously enigmatic mm-hmm. and bewitching and and beguiling and you know most people don't know why. It's a trick on our nervous system. So in our eyeball, in our retina, we have two different neural streams of processing, a high resolution stream and a low resolution stream and they go to different parts of our brain. And if you look at <clears throat> the way uh, Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa, if a high-resolution image, there's a big grin. It actually looks like a Joker, uh, Joker, Joker from Batman grin, very strong because of strong cheekbones. If you look at the low-resolution image, the Mona Lisa is not smiling at all. It's very stoic, flat, okay. flat lips. Uh, so in our retina, in our phobia, we have a high-resolution stream and around it in the periphery we have the low resolution so depending on where you look in the painting her smile is either on your phobia or off to the side so we're either looking at the high resolution or low resolution and therefore it looks like her smile goes a strong grin to a no smile strong grin to, to no smile as you as your eyes move around 
the painting, and it produces this strange effect that you can't really explain and you don't really understand. You just know it's it's pulling you in or tricking your brain. And it's something similar, I think, that's happening with the the shemales. That having the penis overlapping with these other body parts it just tricks our sexual brain in, in the same way. So it generates arousal, but also this sort of like this vertiginous, dizzying feeling as well. But women don't have that, right? Like, it, no. It, 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 when, when the women look at the Mona Lisa, it, well, it doesn't do anything, does it? Well, for the Mona Lisa, it does. But if women, <clears throat> so there is a transsexual man uh, named Buck Angel. Oh, yes. Who, who I'm very familiar, yes. So Buck Angel, body of a man, uh, but a vagina. Uh, you know, beard, smoke cigars. She looked like a biker gang. Yeah, looks yeah. like a biker. Tats, tats all over um, I met her. She, she, she was very nice. Wonderful person. Yeah, wonderful Wa- person. Incredibly generous, nice uh, person. Gay, gay icon in the gay and lesbian and bisexual community. But um, the women's reaction is... Women are not turned on by it. Mm-hmm. You know, straight women look at that. They're either turned off or they might be curious to get to know the person, but no erotic arousal at all. But there is a group that does find Buck Angel mm-hmm. very erotically stimulating, and it's gay guys. Because the exact same effect they look at the body parts it's a man's body and then the strange thing going on between the legs uh, that triggers arousal and, and this dizzying sexual excitement for gay men in exactly the same way it doesn't affect women it affects the, the gay guys it just shows a difference in, this really shows how powerful the difference is between the male sexual brain and the female sexual brain these, uh, these erotic illusions they, they only work on men and similarly like Edward Cullen is an erotic illusion for women yeah you know, guys don't, don't get turned on by reading stories of vampire women. It just there's nothing about it that's going to turn a guy on. That's really confusing to me because when I look at it, and like my, most, almost 100 percent my heterosexual male friend, we're pretty much repulsed by her. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean, yeah. but I mean, I'm yeah. just saying. But yeah, it's interesting that gay men are interested in it, yeah. even though they have vagina. Like, yeah, yeah. it's we, really confusing. Yeah, I mean, the the audience for Buck Angel is gay guys. It's not straight guys. Huh. Yeah. So I think you said something interesting to me. Well, of course, many interesting things. So when you were trying to sell this book initially, you didn't market the book. Um, you, you guys almost market it as an academic book, right? Yeah. I, so it was my first book. I didn't know anything about the publishing industry and, and how to market it. I, I counted on Penguin to know what to do. And uh, I think... Unfortunately, the initial marketing strategy was completely the wrong strategy for the book. Um, first, they made it look very academic, which I just don't think was at all was the way to release the book. I, you know, it's a book about sexual relations. It's relevant to all of us, and it's not an academic book. It contains a lot of science, but it's not, you know, uh, it's, it's not a boring, dry science book. It's meant to explain it in terms that anybody can understand, related to people's ordinary people's sexuality. But the the even worse thing was, they marketed it as a book about fetishes. So, like in the marketing material, they said, "Hey, read this new book about granny porn and bestiality and shemales and bondage no, and stuff like yeah, that." Yeah, nobody wants to read a book about granny, especially Midwest and South. Sure. Yes, you know, even though we have data on that, the book's trying mm-hmm. to explain, you know, our basic sexuality, everybody's sexuality, and, and differences between men and women, and, and you know uh, how how to understand your partner. You know, that was the focus of the book. And even though we address some of these unusual interests, that's not the main focus of the book. So I just, I felt, oh, uh, did a terrible mar- job marketing. And, and 
I didn't like the cover design. I didn't like uh, the press release was terrible. So, yeah, but it, it was interesting. Experience. This is the part that really interests me. When you guys saw the paperback version of it, you guys approached more of this could be help couples to understand each other. Yeah, that's right. We we we, we I'm much happier with <laughs> the the package they put together for the paperback. And that design is beautiful. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's the right design. I wish we had that on the hardcover. Uh, much more appealing design. Much gives a much better sense of the book. And then, yeah, the the marketing and promotion around that is focused on. It should help you with relationships. It'll help you understand your partner <coughs> mm -hmm. better and understand yourself. And that's really the focus of of the book. Be because I've had friends when <laughs> when my female friends when when their husband and boyfriend were caught with tranny stuff, they really panic. Like, yeah. am I not satisfying them well? Uh, yeah. You know, are they gay? Are they, are they, well, women are really they, scared. They, they, they're deviant, you know. This, this is one of the reasons why the sex therapist appreciated our work so much because uh, sex therapists have been telling me we'd see this in our therapy often. And the woman would say, I found the female stuff on my husband and my boyfriend's computer. And is he gay? I don't know what it means. Exactly what you just said. And the sex therapist didn't really know. They didn't know what it meant. You know, they, there was no information about it. So they, they, you know, they would try to help out, but they didn't really know what was going on. And now, finally, with our data, they could see how common it is, a reasonable explanation of it. So many of them said, "Oh, finally, it's a framework for understanding this." And now I can finally talk to them and say, "Hey, it's, it's first of all, it's very common. It's very natural. It's not unusual. It doesn't mean he's gay." And they have a basis for being able to say that now that they didn't have before. And and this is kind of stuff uh, when I say you you and uh, Sai did a wonderful service to humanity because. It's such a difficult thing. I mean, I grew up in an environment where if I even get caught with pornography, I get slapped in the face. You just you just don't talk about it, and that I'm sure millions of people in the past were tormented, feeling like yeah. there's weirdo. In fact, it's they're not weirdo. It's just perfectly normal to have these feelings. And I think you were telling me there's some kind of academic book where they categorize all the deviant stuff, like. Homosexuality was considered deviant sex. When oh, was yeah. it? And then when did they change that attitude? Like in seventies? Nineteen seventy-three is when the the American Psychiatric Association took homosexuality <clears throat> out of the list of uh, mental disorders. Nineteen seventy-three. Until then, it was considered it was considered a result of bad parenting. If you can believe that, they until nineteen seventy-three. Or, or not believe in Jesus enough. No, it, it was, they thought. Bad parent, having a weak father and an overbearing mother would make you gay. You know, that was what psychiatrists... That's mean. like a Freudian thing. Isn't yeah, it? Well, definitely that. coming from Freud, right. Right now, of course, we know that's absolute you know, BS. There's no basis. You know, you're born that way. Uh, or, or you're born that way or very <clears> early you know, in your first few years of life. Something happens in your brain to make you that way. It's definitely not having a weak father that makes you gay. So... Is there certain sexual behavior that's considered deviant, but you don't feel they're deviant? Is, uh, what? Well, I, I, like you said, I'm more tolerant of everything now. I yeah. mean, I'm just seeing everything, seeing the true face of human sexuality. I mean, there was even a moment I felt, you know what? I am the first human being to really see <clears throat> human sexuality as it actually is. When we started looking at all the data, data from millions of people, you know, millions of searches and millions this of This never been done. It's just I, I looked at all of it. I had all of it laid out before me, like all the numbers. And no scientist had looked at it before, and I could see, gosh, how different men and women are, and gosh, how the same gay and straight are, and gosh, you know what, females are popular and penises are popular. Nobody ever knew that before, and and feet are common around the world, but only smaller feet. Like all the the fact, overweight women, oh my gosh, you know, older women, grannies, you know, popular everywhere. 
I was the first person just to see all the facts. And it was just such this moment, like, wow, you know, like. It, it, so that was like moment clarity for you, right? You yeah, and the science. Yeah, it was, it, it's whatever science wants, too. I, it was a moment of revelation. It was Eureka, like, wow, I am the first human being to stare upon uh, human sexuality with this kind of clarity. Nobody's had this data before. And all these new things that nobody expected, nobody knew. And it was a moment ever since then that just, how can you not have tolerance? I mean, we've been in ignorance. All of our presumptions about sex were wrong. We just didn't know, you know? We just, even now, people that haven't looked at our data yet still think, have wrong notions about what's common and what's deviant, what's typical and what's atypical. And when you realize we had no idea what was normal, how can we be judgmental about everything? Because we were just living in ignorance the whole time. And, and one other thing, your book gave so much comfort to my female friends. They, were, they, were, they never took me seriously or believed me when I said this, but women have this belief that the skinnier the women, the better for uh, attracting men. And But if you look at the internet search, like you were saying, because I, I didn't have any data, but when I work at the porno shop, they never asked for, I'm looking for porno with women who are 5 foot 10 and taller and weigh around 110 pounds. Yeah. I mean, there was zero. There was none of that. Whereas we, we're, they always look for women, the big natural tits, big ass this and that, you know, yeah. thick women. And like, it's it just, there's a huge gap between what we want versus what women think we want. And I think that the fashion business and other women terrorizing other women for being overweight. You're absolutely and, right. It's, it's women that are pro propagating this terrible notion. Exactly. It's, it's women. It's not guys. Just look at guys, like you said, look at guys' porn and you'll see the truth. So the uh, men prefer overweight women sexually to underweight women. Now, men prefer average weight, or I should say healthy weight women yes. the most. So I'll be really clear. Average weight, healthy weight women are what guys prefer the most. But given the choice between overweight and underweight, guys are going to choose overweight women. A lot of ways we saw that in the data. Women, uh, guys are three times more likely to search for fat girls than skinny yes. girls. Uh, tons of BBW sites, extremely popular. BBW stands for Big Beautiful Women, basically overweight women sites. Yeah. Extremely popular all around the world. Uh, and definitely, again, to be clear, if you look at the typical weight of a porn actress in the porn, it is uh, healthy weight as defined by the Center for Disease Control. Um, but far more overweight women in erotic in erotica in guys erotica than there are <clears throat> underweight women and, and and this is one of the things i've noticed going to years of convention when i meet the fans and other performers one of the things that men always complain is like especially the girls been around for a little bit they complain about how these skinny bitches that's what they say because yeah. you know women have a tough life because they're being judged by men and other women how they look but porno women have so many things that are going against them because not only are they judged by what their face looks like, what their body looks like, but they're being judged for how they fuck. And they're very self-conscious when they see themselves on film. It's, 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 it adds weight. or it looks, You look heavier on the film. Mm -hmm. So they go a little overboard and try to lose more weight. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think it really hurt their career because that's not what men look yeah, for. But right. yeah, I do talk to a lot of the female porn girls and I feel bad because they, they really think they're huge and fat yeah. and they go crazy and lose a lot of weight. A yeah, lot of weight. Yeah, not necessary. They should just look at the data. I mean, you know. 
And it's because other women are, are people are saying horrible things about their. Uh, yeah, they're hearing it from women. They're not hearing it from guys. So you know, if if any women, I hope I have a female listener. But if they listen to that, you know, I'm really serious. Uh, don't listen to your female friend in fashion magazine. You should listen to what men want. And yeah. and uh, that I think that's one of many things you. What, what's really clear is no matter what your weight, there's going to be guys that find you very erotically appealing. For sure. Yeah. Um. Um, I want to go a couple more things and then a little bit about your background and I'm curious about your other um, new book coming up and we'll finish. Sure. I appreciate, appreciate we'll finish this really quick. You were talking one of your professor friends, he wrote a book about transsexual uh, man who, what was that, something about who will be uh, queen? The, the man who will be queen. Yeah, can you, just, can you talk about him and his book and why was there such an uproar against his yes, studies? His, his name is Michael Bailey. And in the beginning, he was respected by a transsexual crowd. Uh, That's right. Group. Okay. So he wrote this book called The Man Who Would Be Queen about uh, transsexuals, uh, specifically... Clever title. Men to women, mm -hmm. men who want a sex change to become women. And it was something he had studied, and he was well-known in the community. And he developed a theory, which was not a, unique to him. Uh, somebody else came up with a theory, but he was an advocate for it, which is what he, he described in the book, which is there's two kinds of transsexuals again we're talking specifically about <clears throat> men who become women yeah um, uh, the less common type are a man who is gay and wants his body to reflect his gay feelings so uh, some transsexuals clearly fall into this category and again this is a small minority uh, who fit that but the more common type of transsexual is a man who is sexually aroused by the thought of being a woman uh, that is not just that he wants to be that he feels like he's born a man in a woman's body I mean a w born a woman in a man's body but that he's sexually aroused I mean the masturbates about the idea of being a woman or is turned on by the idea of being a woman and that's what ultimately uh, launches him on a path where he becomes a woman so this notion that it's based in sexual arousal rather than biological yeah well, it's still biological. Okay, it's okay, st yeah. still biological. Yeah. Biological in both cases. But in one case, it's, oh, I'm, I've got a woman's brain born in a man's body. And the other, it's, for whatever reason, I'm aroused at the thought of being a woman, sexually aroused by a woman. Now, to me, as a scientist myself, morally and personally, I don't really see much of a di difference in, in morally or, or, or personally or emotionally. They're both biological bases of this phenomenon there has to be a biological basis for this so it's just one's which explanation is right well it sure makes sense Michael Bailey's explanation but transsexuals hated this idea and why is that they didn't like the idea that they were the way they were because of a sexual preference they wanted it to be that they had a woman's brain in a man's body and that's what happened that's what went wrong that was the source of this their condition and the idea that they were this way because of a sexual preference uh, they felt uh, that that was demeaning somehow, which of course that doesn't make any sense. You know, gay guys gay because it's a sexual preference. He's born, yeah. he's born liking penises. You know, it's, that's why he's gay. He's not gay because he's born with some transcendent notion of a gay brain. He's gay because he likes penises right. more than he likes he, vaginas. I mean, it, it's not a woman in a man's body. Right. Exactly. He's just 
a gay guy is gay because of a sexual preference. You're transsexual, apparently, because of a sexual preference also. Which, if that's the case, I think the evidence suggests that, but it's still unproven. But perfectly reasonable theory based on the evidence. Uh, but when and, he presented this idea, what was the reaction? Oh, that, uh, some, um, some transsexuals just... Uh, they went nuts about it. They they hated this. They attacked him, and and again, it was such a surprise because he was such a pro transsexual community, yeah, female community. Sure. I mean, <clears throat> the best thing you can do for a transsexual is support their sex change surgery. You need two letters uh, of support from professionals, and he wrote a lot of those letters for transsexuals to get them the surgery they needed. So I mean, he couldn't have been a stronger advocate for transsexuals. And suddenly, it was really a small group. To be fair, I don't yeah. wanna, <clears throat> I don't want to impugn the entire community because it was really a small number, but very very vocal and aggressive members of the community that attacked him, attacked the book, and they were vicious. Uh, they they went after his colleagues. Uh, they went after his family. They got pictures of his kids. He had small children. Oh and Jesus! They, and took his kids and put his kids' images in pornography and then posted that all over the internet. Uh, just uh, they threatened him. Uh, physically threatened him. Uh, oh, and they even accused him of uh, raping a research subject and managed to get him investigated by his university, <clears throat> Northwestern University, and by the local police too. Uh, which you know, he, he he didn't do this, but since they accused him effectively, you know, he got investigated. So uh, his career really took a hit for a while. He's recovered since then uh, because of it. It also, once again, it shows just. <laughs> Even today, the politics of, of researching sex, talking about sex, it can be just as dangerous and, and uh, experience just as much pushback as, as Kinsey did 50 years ago. What was, what was the problems that he faced when Kinsey was during the 50s? It was just a religious group? and It was conservatives, mostly Christian conservatives, but I'd say more broad than just uh, Christian conservatives, too. So they just, they said we shouldn't research this stuff that... <clears throat> They also didn't like his findings. I mean, this is the same thing that Michael Bailey ex experienced. It's like they don't want to hear the facts. So when he said, look at all these, Kinsey found that more people had gay experiences than was commonly realized. He found that more people masturbated than well, was commonly A lot of realized. people practicing infidelity as well. He found more cheating going on than people realized. Uh, all of these things. And Christian said, no, this is not true. He's promoting this. You know, he's He's promoting the idea that we should be uh, unfaithful, and that you know we should masturbate, and that we should have gay experiences. So, uh, even today, it's conflating. Here's the facts, ma'am. With you know, we should be doing this, and it was the same thing with Michael Bailey, and the same thing with us. You know, <clears throat> we're reporting the data we found. Uh, we're not saying you should go look at shemale porn. We're just saying, you know what, shemale porn's common. You know, we're saying, you know what, men and women behave entirely differently sexually. That's the numbers show. We're not saying it should be this way, but. Saying that's how it is. It, was there anything that Kinsey did that, that, that was not accurate? That looking back, uh... he, I, I think he overstated homosexual experiences. And one thing that he got wrong that was pretty fundamental is he believed that we. It's called the Kinsey scale. It's a scale of sexual orientation. So at one end of the scale is completely straight. At the other end of the scale is completely gay, mm -hmm. and the middle is bisexual. And he thought most people were in the middle, that were all more or less bisexual. Was he? And uh, he was. Um, but he thought, and he thought most people naturally that, that way, and that you know a, a few people were completely straight, and a few people were completely gay. In fact, it's completely the opposite of the truth. 
most people are completely straight or completely gay, and there's very few people that are bisexual. And we see that in our data too, mm-hmm. by looking at searches. People search for all straight stuff or they search for all gay stuff. There's very few people that are searching for both, that are searching for bisexual stuff. Very, they exist, but they're a very tiny minority. It's definitely not what Kinsey thought, which is you find rare on the ed- edges and a lot in the middle. It's, he thought it was, if you can imagine, an upside down U, okay. letter U upside down, with the peak in the middle, sort of like a, uh, a bell curve. He thought it was like that. The truth is, it is like the U. Most people are high on the edges, and there's not many people in the middle. So bisexuals in the middle, there's not a lot of people there in the middle. Ah. So what do you say to parents, you know, when they find their 15, 16, 17-year-old kid, boy or girl, they're doing a lot of experimenting. Is that something to be concerned, or that's just kind of normal? Yeah, I think for for girls, it's very safe. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're talking about exploring erotic and fantasies yeah, so, yeah. so not talking about actual sexual behavior with real people but in terms of being exposed to erotica the truth is probably with women it'll have less of an effect because women are very they adjust and they adapt and they're going to keep changing anyway but I, I will admit that things that a teenage boy is exposed to have an increased chance that he's going to imprint upon them so you know a kid age 14 <coughs> to 16 that is when his brain is imprinting on stuff so uh, I would say, you know, if you want to supervise what your kid's looking at, you'd probably want him looking at more common stuff, mainstream stuff, yeah. not the unusual stuff. The more unusual it is, if he's looking at it repeatedly, the more likely he is to imprint upon it. Now, of course, a kid's not going to look at that stuff to begin with unless there's already some basic interest. So it is kind of a self-fulfilling pro- prophecy, to be honest. That is, you know, a kid's not going to go look at really heavy girls on his own unless there's something inside him already that's making him want to look at really heavy girls. Uh, so if you force a kid to look at really heavy girls, if you force a boy to look at really heavy girls, age 14, naked heavy girls, age 14 to 18, probably is going to end up liking that. But he's not going to randomly look at that stuff day after day unless there's already some basis for that interest to begin with. i got to say two things about that. I, I have a friend that works for a company called Harmony, which is a big retail company in Great Britain, and also the retail store and production company. And I was always struck whenever I go to England, they have this fetish where schoolmasters in school, you know, and I think, I guess a lot of the boys are sent to boarding school. So one of the early sexual experiences they have exposed to certain kind of women where they don't have a female student in class. So it's always these kind of you know, matrons. Mate, yeah, exactly. And like, because I, I didn't understand why that was such a prevalent in England, but it, it really is. I, I know people don't want to hear stereotype, but it's, it's not a lie. It's exaggeration of truth. And though I talk to the retailers, um, and they tell me those are the always popular ones. Now, there's plenty of English people living in the states. But they didn't grow up in that environment, so their taste is different. But yeah, you're, I think I agree with you. Exactly right. Without having any science background, that that, that has a lot to do with. And second, that friends that I have that seem very normal sexually, it's one of the common things that I, it's interesting, and it's not based on science. All the normal guys, I think, is I think that want to have a pretty good attitude about sex. It's a very common thing. Their dads always let them look at their Playboy, and like that was encouraging them. Like, look. You know, don't cause problem. Don't tell your mom, but look at these. And they're the one that seem to have yeah. a pretty normal taste and normal attitude. 
I actually think that if you show your kid or, or permit your kid to look at mainstream porn, he's going to turn out with mainstream normal tastes. Just like you said, I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at Playboys and penthouses. I mean, and, these days they, they don't even seem like a porno to me. Or even, you know, I'd even say the main tube sites, you know, Pornhub, well, I want to be careful. Some of the some of them have taken a, a turn towards more kinky stuff, but uh, <clears throat> Pornhub, I can say with a lot of confidence, like mm-hmm. Pornhub keeps the more unusual material uh, off Pornhub and puts it on some of their sister sites. Uh, so, they, like, I know they don't put rape on or bestiality or, or any really hardcore stuff. Uh, so, yeah, but again, I, I don't think a kid's going to look at that stuff on his own. Uh, any more than, you know, when we were kids, you know, I looked at Playboys and, and yeah. Penthouse, and that's, that's what was available. I mean, I could have gone and gotten strange stuff, but I, I, there was never any reason to, you know, why would you when there's Playboys and Penthouses available? So I think the internet basically functions that way too. But you should definitely, as a parent, you know, you want to kind of monitor it. I'd say kind of have, you know, kind of know, but, you know, if you find your kid looking at mainstream porn, you don't need to make a big deal out of it. It's not really. I think making big deal will cause a big yeah, problem down the road. And I think I'm. Sur- I don't have kids, but I feel people like if you're a parent, reading this book will really help them get a really big picture of it. Yeah. And and um, what I was going to say, God damn it. <laughs> um, oh, um, the kids. Uh, uh, one thing I was. Uh, oh, I remember. So, 1999, there was a pornographer named Khan Tujian. Um, he he made this movie called Rough Sex, uh, Volume One and Two, and I think it's 97, 98, 90, maybe 99. And when I saw it, I was shocked because they were doing things like shoving women's face down the toilet, um, a lot of physical violence and stuff like that. Now, it was so controversial back then. I think that's a lot of the retailers were afraid to hold them. Because it wasn't so much breaking the law, but, but they're always afraid the police are going to come and start harassing you. Yeah. What's interesting to me, now, the stuff that you saw in rough six volumes in the late 90s, it's common now. So that as time passed, people's tolerance for rougher stuff become like the things that were rough 15 years ago, it's, it's the norm, right? Well, I, I wouldn't say it's the norm. No, okay. But, um, it's more it's common. Not, yes, you can find it now more easily mm. and accessible. I mean, I'd actually say the, the truly violent and extreme stuff like what you were describing, mm-hmm. it's, it's a small percentage. You know, I wouldn't say it's the norm. It's common. There's a broad base of people that, that like that stuff, but I, w- I don't think that's in the top 20, top 25 most common sexual interests, most common sexual themes. So I, I'm curious your opinion on this. When one of my friend's kid emailed me one time, told me he knew exactly what I did for a living. I, I did go a little bit of a crisis because, because the stuff that I grew up with is so tame compared to what it is today. So the kids, like 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 year kids, let's be, let's be realistic here, they do have access to uh, porn. Yeah. So when they're watching the stuff is considered rough right now, do you think their tastes are you know what I'm trying to say? Their tastes are going to be different than, because I didn't grow up with that stuff. I kind of learned yeah. to like it later on. So, I mean, if, if they're looking I, at it, I when would be 12- worried if, you know, your 15 year old kid's looking at the violent stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
the violent the violent stuff is not on the mainstream sites. I mean, there's <clears throat> there's aggressive stuff, but like outright violence is is relatively rare, mm-hmm. uh, relatively uncommon. If your kid's looking at that, yeah, I definitely would intervene. You don't want your kid looking at at, at that stuff because by the time they're middle age, their taste is gonna be. Yeah. I mean, once after a while, you'll be jaded. So you want something harder. I don't. I don't want to treat like a drug. So no, I, I don't think it works that way. It doesn't. Okay. No. I, I, and why I, is that? That there's a, myth, a slippery slope myth that we constantly need stronger stuff to mm-hmm. turn us on. You like what you like, and that's what you always like. So okay. If you like that uh, aggressive stuff, violent stuff, well, that's what you're always going to like. You're not going to need a taste for always something harder. That's just going to be what you what you always like. But definitely, yeah, I, that certainly is a risk that if you have a ki- 15-year-old kid, 14-year-old kid looking at the stuff, that's definitely going to influence him. But again, I don't think that stuff's common enough. If a kid's just surfing and just trying to look at porn, that's not going to come up unless he's actually actively looking for that stuff. I see. Um, I'd, I'd like to end, end this last portion of it. So can you tell me your, your background? Because uh, you, there's a couple of things that are really interesting. You don't come from academic family, right? No. So, so um, you know, I want to congratulate your parents. You did a wonderful job. And <laughs> But what was your dad's reaction when he heard <laughs> you're getting to six studies, you know, I mean, well, was he supportive? My parents, my parents were very supportive. Okay. So they knew I was coming at it from science. So, I mean, you know, I just got my PhD and, you know, I explained to them, you know, look, I'm looking at the sexual brain and, and you know, they knew I was going to do it scientifically. And, you know, they saw the result too. And that, you know, it wasn't sensationalistic <laughs> and it wasn't salacious. And so they appreciated that, you know, I mean, it's probably not exactly what they hoped that I would be doing. Right. They didn't feel any shame for it, and, and you know they supported me, right. which was wonderful of them. But outside of my parents, uh, my parents come from a both of them come from conservative backgrounds, uh, especially my mother. And so, out, you know, my aunts and uncles, grandparents, they <laughs> were not very happy about this. So it's sort of the subject that it will not be named when we have family events. You know, everybody kind of talks around the fact that this is the book I've written. Like. If it comes up that I'm an author, everybody makes sure not to mention the book or talk about the book. You know, everybody kind of pretends I didn't actually write the. Have any of them changed their uh, attitude, like saying they were wrong about it? Uh, no, I just it just doesn't come up. It's like the the subject that cannot be talked about. So, Uh, but that's what I expected. But my parents were very supportive, and that's all that really mattered to me. And and your academic college? Well, you you don't teach anymore. No, no, but uh, no, I. You know, I haven't had contact with them since the book came out. So, but uh, you know, I think if they looked at it, they'd all be, you know, pressed by what we came up with. You know, from what we started with, certainly compared to what they <coughs> thought we were going to be able to do with yeah with the, with the data. And and besides sex therapists, you know, were you surprised by people like supporting you, supportive of you? But did it surprise you? I, you know, scientists, especially scientists in the hard sciences have been very supportive and then sex therapists have been very supportive and that's you know what matters the most to us i mean we did a book that's hard science and we hope you have a data to support it and we have yeah. data supported and you know we looked at it from <coughs> biological and neural point of view and we hope that people could use it in their lives to improve their everyday relationships which is what sex therapists do so i mean <coughs> that's the two groups of people that we you know hope would respond favorably and they have so it's been you know very 
wonderful experience from, from that point of view. Now, you, you also helped the Homeland Security for terrorism, yeah. things like that. And I've been to Afghanistan twice, and I'm planning to go to Yemen and Pakistan the next couple of years. Now, I, I, I got the feeling sometimes they do these horrible things hiding behind religious mission or uh, jihad or whatever, but is there, sometimes I got the feeling that there's some kind of sexual frustration is that really is the cause of... Uh, oh, I wouldn't want to speculate on that. I, oh, okay. I couldn't say. I can tell you this, though, that mm -hmm. one of the most common uh, kinds of erotica in Arab countries is Jews and Arabs having sex. <laughs> In this cup, so if that, maybe that suggests something. <laughs> it's uh, in both kinds, you know. You'll find uh, it's popular among Jewish people and Muslims. That's right. So both, uh, you know, Muslim porn. You'll find both Muslims, you know, dominating Jews and Jews dominating Muslims in both countries. Both kinds are are popular, but uh, you know, you find a higher proportion of that than you would by mere chance alone. Let's put it th put it that way. Because there was a documentary within the last two years. Uh, they're basically covering that, like the sex between the Muslims and Israel. It was interesting when they were talking to a Jewish person about Muslim, they get really, really angry. And when they're talking to Muslim but Jews, they get angry. But f a few minutes later, they they say, "Have you ever had attraction to whoever they hate?" And all of a sudden, they kind of soften up. Mm -hmm. And uh, even um, what's her name? Golda Meir, she was a prime minister right. of Israel. She, yeah, she even mentioned the fact that she did have an affair with a Palestinian guy when she was a young <laughs> woman. Um, yeah. is, is that like a widely known knowledge in the countries? Like those are the erotic. I, I think most people would be surprised to know just how popular you know that kind of erotic, the the, the cross religion, cross ethnicity erotica is. I mean, here in America, blacks and white. Porn with you know black guys and white girls very popular. Oh, I know Green. that I know for yeah, fact. You know for fact, I think it's the same thing. It's sort of, it's a taboo. It's something you know something that shouldn't happen. And oh, that's why it's popular. Yeah, yeah. My friend Tanner, my new comedian friend, I'm work. You know, we're working a bunch of writing projects. But I remember when we used to work at Taboo Video, which was a very popular store in downtown Seattle, and he had to literally fight the owner of the club. Like he wanted to sell a lot of this interracial stuff, and they keep telling the guys. No one's gonna buy that black and white. <laughs> why? Why would they buy that? That's just crazy. That that will offend people. They're gonna be angry. Yeah. Anyway, Tan is half white and half Samoan. He's like, screw this. He took his own money and bought those product. Wow. And next thing you know, it they're selling like crazy. Yeah. Good and who are buying? <laughs> who are buying the black and white girl stuff? It's always white doctors, white lawyers, white engineers, yep. all the professional That's people. Right. That uh, there's no way they could even bring that stuff to their wife and girlfriend. That's you know, right. but. Yeah, it, it just... And there, once again, it's really the, the domination and submission theme, this thing that both men and women share. Everybody shares it. Gay people, straight people, men, women, they all like a dominant role, submissive role. And in this, the black guy is a dominant role. Mm -hmm. I mean, you especially see this in gay porn. You know, gay porn is a top and a bottom. You know. Gay guys seduce a heterosexual guy. They love that they stuff. They love that. That's exactly right. <clears throat> Extremely popular is, is a straight guy getting broken <laughs> by a by a gay guy and especially when it's in gay porn if it's a, if there's a black guy he's almost always the top you know? yes because he's so aggressive we're dominant that's how it's portrayed in the pornography uh, and so in Arab and Jew porn Arab and Jewish porn 
Um, you get both variations too, depending on the country. You know, in, in Israel, porn with a Muslim guy and a Jewish woman. Yeah. You know, that's popular, and the opposite's popular in the Arab countries. And you know, I'm ethnically Korean, but growing up in Japan. And it's always interesting because Japanese still refuse to uh, apologize for World War II, and and the Koreans and uh, Chinese they get really really angry yeah. about the Japanese. But it's really interesting if you go to those countries, they love Japanese porn. Yeah. They they just love it. They can't get enough. And they one of the few exceptions they'll make is whenever Japanese female porn stars show up, and all of a sudden whatever the hatred they have for the Japanese <laughs> completely disappear. You know. <laughs> Um, I, I wish people are more honest. I, I, I think, I don't know, maybe I was making a quick judgment about the religious being frustrated, but I, it just seemed like the world would be a better place if people are just more honest and, and, and stop judging people about their needs. I just, yeah, it, it just never sees the main, and like all the things you have to deal with, your colleagues think you're pervert and, and, and stuff. It's so hard. I mean, we, we, our, our sexual reactions are so ingrained in us. It's so hard to be sexually tolerant. I mean, <laughs> And we see that you know, women don't like men's sexuality. Uh, straight people don't like gay people's sexuality. You know, uh, we don't like other ethnicities, other religions' sexuality. We each, we each can find something in other people's sexuality that makes us uncomfortable. Because it's different from us. You know, whenever we see sexuality as different from our own, it just makes us uncomfortable in a powerful way. And it's, it, it's deeply rooted. You know, it's, some, it's hard to get over. We have to work at it. Yeah. And it, it's just so funny because I say it on stage because every time I ask a question, like, how many of you watch pornography? And no one raised their hands, right? Yeah. And, like, I'm the only pervert yeah, yeah. spending $8 billion a year. <laughs> and we all think if, if, you know, whenever I talk to my male friends, if, if they're not into what I'm, what I'm into, they're uh, fucking weirdos and vice versa. Yeah. We're, we're quick to judge if they're not into what we're into. And in reality, it's just... Some of us like Italian food. Some people like Japanese food. It's just a different food. I don't know why you wouldn't judge someone for liking sushi, but yet it's a beautiful metaphor. Something I always say: it's like it's like I don't like broccoli, you know. So if I see somebody else eating broccoli, you know, I don't want to eat it, but I don't start to morally judge them. Absolutely, broccoli. I don't say you got to, in the name of God, stop eating that broccoli, or you know, you're a bad person for eating that broccoli. I'm not going to eat it, but. If you want to eat it, go ahead. And, and all sexual tastes should be like that. You know? you, they make us uncomfortable. Okay, it's okay to feel uncomfortable. Absolutely. I, I don't like looking up gay porn. It, it makes me depressed. It makes me feel bad. I, it grosses me out. It disgusts me. Uh, but good but, stories. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, gay porn disgusts me, but I'm not going to... Judge them. Yeah, I'm not going to judge you for liking gay porn. I'm not going to say there's something morally wrong with it just because I don't like it, you know? I like broccoli too. And a couple more things before I let you go. Um, you did a, uh, you're very uh, successful at uh, TV game shows. <laughs> That's right. Competitive. And you were in Jeopardy, right? And, and you, you did really very well. Very long time ago. Yeah, but you did really well in Jeopardy. And uh, you came back second time around for competitive. You competed other champions. No, so right? I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Oh, okay. So I was on Jeopardy a long time ago as yeah. a kid. As a kid. Uh, then I was on uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire just a few years back. But you, you uh, competed with Ken Jennings? Yes. Um, so I, I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I got to the million-dollar question. Yeah. And then on the basis of that performance, um, there was a game show called Grand Slam that was a tournament of the greatest 
game show winners. So they had the biggest game show winners in American history from the past 25 years from a whole bunch of shows. Ken Jennings from yeah. Jeopardy. And actually there was a guy that won even more money than Ken Jennings on Jeopardy, a guy named Brad Ryder. So he was in this too. Oh, uh, is that right? That's right. If you remember, there was a, used to be a show called Tic Tac Doe, the biggest winner yeah. from that. He was in the tournament. Uh, there was a show called 21, the biggest winner from that. So it's a bunch of big, uh, the woman, uh, there's only one woman who won the million dollars on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. She was on it. There's only one? Yeah, only one woman. That oh, won one woman, okay. Who won a million dollars on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Um, so they were on this tournament, and the guy that produced the tournament, he also produces Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and he let me be on it too. I wasn't one of the biggest winners of all time. I see. Uh, definitely not. I wouldn't qualify, but he liked me, and he liked the way I went about trying to win millions, and he thought I'd be competitive. So it was all these big winners and me, and he was right. I did go about trying to win the thing. You know, I put together some strategy, and it was a really interesting competition. It's on YouTube, so you Google Grand Slam uh, or Grand Slam Ken Jennings, Grand Slam Ogiogas, and you can see it. But it's super fast-paced. It's super intense, and they ask these rapid-fire questions, and it's not just trivia. It's also math. Like you have to do algebra, you have mm-hmm. to do geometry problems, uh, and there's word puzzles. It's like anagrams and find the word, and all of this happening, you know, super fast, you know, face to face with your competitor. So it's uh, it was a tournament of all of these great winners, and I was very fortunate. I got to the finals, and I went against Ken Jennings, uh, who's famous, of course, for winning so much on Jeopardy. Absolutely, and yeah, uh, yeah it was a really fun, really intense experience. Did you Did you have a chance to talk to the guy? Oh, yeah, yeah. What was he like? Uh, you know, he's very competitive. I was very competitive. Uh, he's a nice guy. Uh, both wanted to win. He won. <laughs> but there was nothing really, uh, I, I don't want to say remarkable about him, but he was just, just competitive and that, that was it. Yeah, I mean, he's naturally born. He's got a great mind for that stuff. I mean, just born that way. You know, I... Compared it, I, I was like a jaguar. I was finely tuned. I was a very fragile. I broke down real easily because I'm not natural at doing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I used a lot of tricks from my background as a brain researcher to kind of figure out like strategies, but they're very brittle strategies. And he's more like a SUV, like a a jeep or off road. He could travel in any terrain. So I he, see. He was just really good at no matter what got thrown at him. Um. And in the next book, then we'll finish this yes. thing. Uh, what, what are you working on next book? What is it called? Do you have a title already? So one thing I'm working on regarding sex is I'm working on a book called um, Why Sex Fizzles and How to Recharge It. So I'm actually collaborating it's, uh, with Sai, who's my old collaborator, but also with a sex therapist named um, Marianne Branson. And uh, she's a prominent sex therapist based in Maryland. And she really liked Billion Wicked Thoughts. And she works with couples who are trying to, who like a lot of couples, the people that have been married for a while or boyfriends and girlfriends have been together for a while. And the sex isn't exciting anymore. And what can you do about it? Well, our research suggests some ways to spice up sex life again. And she's used some of these techniques in her practice. And so we're kind of writing an advice book that hopefully will help people in long-term relationships find Oh, so this is a practical application of it. Yeah. So Billion Wicked Thoughts was about our research, but this is just, it's a manual for people in relationships once, you know, the sex isn't exciting as it used to be, you know, what you can do to, to spice it up again. 
And our central argument actually is that, you know, the feminist revolution has been great for women and absolutely supporter of it and necessary mm-hmm. and so am I. how women yeah. get uh, equal rights, but it's probably had a negative effect on the bedroom. And that's because even though we want equality in our everyday life, equality in our business world, equality in the boardroom, we don't want equality in the bedroom. There's definitely a need for dominance, right? Exactly. You know, women want to be submissive or receptive. Guys want to be dominant or assertive. And since feminism, nobody's really comfortable with that. Guys are a lot more hesitant about behaving that way now in the relationships. And women are reluctant to let themselves be perceived that way. And the result is a lack of sexual fire, a lack of sexual spark. And uh, Marianne, the sex therapist, she sees this all the time in her practice and has been trying to help people. And we show how we can use our data and combine it with these practical tips to give you know, very concrete ways that people can improve their, their sex life. I do feel bad for women because they have tendency, like they have to get approval from their girlfriend and things like that. I think if they want to be free, they should just pursue things that really make them happy and not worry about what their girlfriend thinks, you know. That's and, right. And, uh, yeah. Um, when, when is that book uh, going to get released? Should be, should be by the end of the year, uh, maybe even by uh, September, October. It's, we're, we're not far away from being done, but we're not really sure when it's coming out yet. Could you talk a little bit more about your second book, the new project you're working on? Because it really sounds exciting and uh, uh, it's going so to help So I'm working a on a new, it's a, it's a shorter book. It's called Why Sex Fizzles and How to Recharge It. And it's really a practical guide to help couples that have been together for a while where the sex is not as good as it used to be to find ways of rejuvenating the sex again. And to spice time, it up. That's yeah. right, to spice it up again. To, to make sex exciting again. Uh, or maybe even exciting for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And this time I'm collaborating with a sex therapist named Marion Branson who works in uh, uh, Maryland. And she works with couples that have this exact problem. And she was really excited by Billion Wicked Thoughts because it gave her data to support the kind of things she was doing uh, in, her th- in therapy. And it was great for us because we have this data, you know, we have these theories, but we haven't been able to apply it practically. And it was the opposite for her. She applies stuff practically, she's working with couples but didn't really have the data, so it was a perfect match. And we got together and we really hit it off really well and put together this book that explains why uh, sex seems to fizzle and why so many couples have struggled with it. And one of our, our basic ideas is that the reason for this is actually something social. It's due to the feminist revolution. Now, uh, I completely support the feminist movement and all the civil rights for women that they've achieved in the last 20 to 30 years. Yeah, so do I, yeah. It's been a great thing. Um, But even though we want equality in the public sphere and equality in the boardroom, equality doesn't always work in the bedroom. Uh, And we have a preference for dominance and submissiveness or being assertive and receptive in the bedroom. That's what our brains want. But we've entered a new cultural state where guys are a little bit hesitant to allow themselves to do that. They know they want or they think that women want them to be sensitive and understanding and uh, a little, they're a little hesitant about you know, jumping in and taking control of things. And likewise, women are a little uncomfortable giving up that. Uh, they're a little comf- uncomfortable allowing themselves to be submissive or saying that they want this or even admitting that they want this. And our book kind of explains this and helps people find ways to use this knowledge to develop uh, you know, more exciting sex again.
And so this is a practical application of that, all the studies and data. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a mix of, mm. of our data and our research and uh, Marianne's practical experience working with couples uh, in therapy. That, that, that sounds like a really great combo, you know, and because on one hand, your book teach everyone that whatever the desire or need that you have, it's not weird. It gives them a psychological exactly. comfort, and your sex therapist have years of uh, helping couples, so it, it sounds like it, this is a... It's yeah, it's very, it's very exciting to work on it. Just to, We wouldn't have thought we were compatible, but uh, it turned out that we were. So do you, do you have a tentative title for it? It's Why Sex Fizzles okay. and How to Recharge It. Why Sex Fizzles and How to Recharge It. It's a tentative title. It'll come out by the end of the year, hopefully uh, sometime this fall. And I, I, I will definitely put your Twitter account, your account, so I, I hope the book you know. is... Yeah, I hope the book is ready, you know, by Christmas. This, this will be a great gift for couples. Absolutely. Um, um, so everyone, when you, I, I will um, notify everyone on the Twitter account. Oh, that please buy, read, obviously read the first book and then uh, read this for at the end of the year because I, I think this is really important. I think there's a lot of unhappy couples and, and uh, you know, uh, there's no shame. That's one great thing about growing up in Japan. I think you're, you're the first non-Japanese telling me this. Japan, even though they have tendency to copy other people's idea for cars and electronic equipment, it's one of the few countries in the world. Sexual innovation is so big because Japan, for whatever reason, we don't have, well, we, didn't, we don't live under Christianity and we don't live under Freudian psychotherapy and things like that. We just think these are just normal and it's okay to take care of yourself. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. Japan is known as the, the very best at perfecting things that other people have made. So they, they didn't invent the car, but they perfected the car. They yes. didn't invent the computer, they perfected the computer. But when it comes to sex, they are the world's greatest innovators, even more than America. The most creative creative and ingenious and just plain interesting erotica all comes out of Japan. You know, it's a, it's a very strange thing. We have many problems, but sexual frustration is not one of them. So I, <laughs> um, I hope, um, like I said, please buy um, A Billion Wicked Dots and there's a new book coming at the end of the year. I, I think it's a terrific gift and uh, just, you know, make yourself happy by reading the books and teach yourself and uh, I think the relationship will get better because I think Taking care of sexual need will prolong happier, longer life for everyone. I think. Um, so before I, I, I end this uh, fun, po- it really was fun. I appreciate you doing it. But I'm I'm here with my friend Allison. She's been kind enough to drive me around last three weeks all over New England, and I I, I don't want to just let two guys talk about sex. I really want to hear what she have to say, and then just ask any questions, multiple questions, because he 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 will help you with it. And now uh, here we go, Allison. Well, I was going to say that when you said that bisexuals were uncommon, I was shocked because, and I thought, you know, Kinsey was bisexual. I actually know that. But me being bisexual, I always say, oh, well, you know, most girls are. And I think that's a really common perception that most women are at least, and if not all men. And and I wonder what makes a, a bisexual woman tick. You know, is it a biological thing or is it somewhat psychological? I don't know. I'm just... Oh, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you asked this. So first, I should clarify earlier when I was talking about how uh, it's very few. I was talking about men in terms. Of, there's very few bisexual men. Most men are wired to be very straight or very gay, and there's not much in the middle. Women, very different story. You're absolutely right. Far more bisexual women uh, uh, than there are bisexual men. Much, much more common. Much more common to go back and forth. With men, you're gay or you're straight. You don't go back and forth across the lifespan, but Women, much more common 
maybe you're straight for a while, and then you experiment with uh, lesbian, and you have relationships, and maybe you stay that way, or maybe you come back again. Uh, both of these are common. And why is that? You know, why is there such a difference? Well, the w- women's brain, as I talked about earlier, more interested in personality and emotion and the relationship and the character of a person. And because of that, because more focused on that than the body, um, it's possible to feel that from a woman, or at least it's easier to feel that from somebody of the same sex than for a man. A man is just focused on the breasts or, or the butt, and so he doesn't want to look at that on a man, he wants to look at that on a woman. So for a woman, there's already a basis for uh, being attracted to someone. A lot of women who fall in love with a woman for the first time after having relationships with men, they usually say it's a personality. It was just this really amazing personality that, that captivated them rather than saying, oh, it was a really sexy body or hot body. Uh, something else I should say, one of our most interesting findings about women in pornography, which relates to what you asked, is so very few women like to look at pornography, like to look at visual pornography. However, those women that do like guys' pornography. So a lot of times you're going to hear uh, that if only they would make pornography that was more appealing to women, yeah. uh, that was you know w- more female-friendly, more women would watch it. Actually, there already is plenty of female-produced pornography, sort of softer pornography, and women aren't, just aren't interested in looking at that. If a woman is interested in looking at pornography, she almost always goes for the stuff, yeah. same stuff that guys want. Yeah, that's all what I was thinking the whole time. Yeah. And also that my personal tastes reflected your research because, <clears throat> you know, I'm attracted to, to feminine women. And obviously in the lesbian community, there's a lot of, you know, femmes that like masculine women and, and vice versa. And, um, but, but the dominant submissive thing, you know, it is hard to find a dominant feminine looking girl. It's just right. not that common in the real world. So, and so, so you, you would appreciate a dominant person, right? right. You, you, so you, I want, actually, you want to be re- submissive, receptive sometimes sexually. I exactly. And so I actually date far fewer women. You know, I mean, I was, I was married to a woman who was feminine, beautiful and all this, but um, it's hard to find a woman that, you know, yeah, it's, is it's, more dominant. It's, so, the, it's the combinations, you know, I mean, you have, our brains have these separate sexual elements, and it's hard to put them together. You know, we like to be submissive, but you might be attracted to a feminine woman. I mean, I was saying it's very analogous to the way guys like shemales. I mean, a guy wants to see nice breasts, but there's something about the penis that turns it on, and a shemale puts these together in a way that, you know, gives a man what he wants, but it's sort of in a fantasy. You can't really get that in, in the real world, and it sounds like something very similar. You know, you want a dominant man but you to give you the dominance, but you still want, you're more attracted to it. A feminine female body, you know, personality. So, right. how can you get that combination? It's tough to find it. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, a woman that's is more visually focused, because that's me. I mean, I could so, care less about no, erotic. No, it's interesting. Are, are, are you, maybe you can tell me if any of this applies to you. So, our data shows. Is it, is it, our data shows again. So, a minority of women. So, majority of women don't look at porn, but those that do like guys porn, but the women that do like porn, they usually seem to have other personality characteristics. They usually seem to be more generally socially aggressive, more socially confident. Uh, They seem to be more comfortable with role-playing, especially role-playing dominant and submissive roles in the bedroom, and they seem to be more willing to take risks. Does any of that apply to you? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, maybe there's something in some women's brains Whatever makes a woman more likely to be attracted to porn makes them more likely to take risks and more aggressive in these 
other things too. Maybe it's just all part of one package in the brain. So some women seem to have that. Maybe it's analogous. You know, some guys are gay, and something's different going is going on in their brain in terms of the hormones. So maybe there's something happening like that in you and other other women you know, similar to you that like pornography. Right. And in the book, do you talk about um, you know lesbian tastes much, or or was that not so to much? Find? To be honest, the, we really struggled with this. Uh, so we only wanted to talk about sexual taste in the book, sexual interest, when we could actually talk to people in that community. Because um, we had, all our data was mostly abstract, but we didn't want to publish it or write about it or draw conclusions unless we could actually talk to real people that had, you know, so if we're going to talk about Shima porn, we needed to talk about, talk to fans of Shima porn, just to make sure that the results were getting more accurate. And for all the communities we looked at, we we found people that were very willing to share us. But I have to be honest, when we went into lesbian communities, they weren't comfortable with us. And I, I mean, I don't blame them. We were two heterosexual guys that kind of showed up and said, we want to talk to you about your sex and some of these things. And so some of the communities made an active effort not to work with us. Wow. And we were, uh, you know, at the time, a little nervous about this, and we didn't want to push it, be pushy about it, so we kind of right. backed off from it. You know, uh, we're, doing, we're working on another follow-up book to Building Wicked Thoughts, and this time we're definitely going to include uh, more lesbians. We've already made inroads in lesbian communities. I was going to say it's too bad because I am always fascinated by, you know, there's there's the whole concept of, like, the, the two women that look so much alike, you know, or, um, you know, why some, I mean, the Stone Butch thing, like, what's going on there? I'm so, I'm fascinated by it, so that'll be interesting to... Yeah, we collected data there. on it. I mean, w- one thing I can say that's that we found very interesting is on lesbian erotic sites uh, on the internet, uh, there's always a strong political message. There's the political and the sexual are always married together. There's usually some kind of mini manifesto that on our site, it's all races, ethnicities, creeds, and sexual orientations, like uh, on Crash Pad series site, uh, for example. But, but all lesbian sites have some variation. On guys' sites, you will never find a political statement. Guys, <laughs> no interest. Politics and sex do not mix. And even on the gay sites, there's never any political you're, message. You're right about that. I noticed, yeah, you're right. Um, Belladonna stuff, sometimes the girls will say something pro-feminism or politics stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the political and the sexual are, are inextricable. And, and it comes, to, again, it's, it's the personality, the, the emotion and, and the... And the social side of it, it's in a woman's brain, is linked to the sexual. And guys, it's like I don't want anything to do with right. politics. And it's the opposite, you know. On on the lesbian sites, it's like we don't discriminate based on body type. You know, guy, of course, of course, you know, it's if it's a big boob site, it's gotta have the big boobs. If it's a big butt site, it's gotta big butts. You absolutely are discriminating on body types in, in, in the men's site. So that was one of the. It's one of the most obvious things, but you know, once you see it, but. It hadn't been talked about. It was not in the, in the academic literature. Nobody really pointed out, you know, something. But once we looked at the sites and compared them, it's one of the biggest ones. The other thing that's interesting, one more thing, uh, is lesbian sites have just as much domination and submission as guy sites too. Sure. They just talk about it. There's a lot more warnings and explanations. If you look at the images and the porn itself, it's identical to what you'll find on guy sites in terms of dominance and submission. But there's just so much more talking first. Like, Warning: This may trigger, you know, problems if you've ever had these bad experiences. And 
It makes sure to explain, mm -hmm. oh, they really like each other, and even though she's whipping them with chains, it's okay. They, they're just pretending, don't worry. <laughs> In the guy sites, it's the same exact sequence, just, you know, there's no verbiage around it, so very, very fascinating. And I, I have two other questions, is that okay? okay? Okay, one is the, the feet. You didn't actually go into why that was one of the four things, I just was curious. So uh, much less interesting feet than the other body parts. So penis, breasts, and butt, extremely popular. Feet not as popular, but popular in every culture, enough that it's biological. So men are always interested in below average size feet uh, when they have that fixation. Uh, women are interested in average size feet. Uh, men are interested in below average size feet. Women have fetish. That's a popular. No, thing. no, 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 women are not interested. Women are not interested. I don't know no, one. Yeah, no, so. no, women are not okay, interested in feet. So. And if you ask them sure, sure. what they say, they say they like average size feet. Um, but in every culture, even Aboriginal cultures, so preliterate, primitive cultures, uh, there's attraction to feet. So what's interesting, what we found in our data, is that guys that are interested in the feet are also interested in pornography, where the man is submissive. Uh, there seems to be some link, and we don't know what it is, but it clearly is biological that if a guy is interested in feet, he's probably going to be interested in being submissive or at least in pornography, like pornography where a guy is getting stepped on by a woman or he has to lick a woman's boots or uh, is being spanked by a woman. That goes together with the interest in feet. What that means... Uh, don't know. I don't know if one causes the other or if there's something in the brain that causes both. And you find this in gay men, too. Gay men also have foot fetishes with the same prevalence as among straight men and also show the same uh, interest in submissiveness, too. So it's definitely something about the guy's brain that, that's interesting in feet. Wow. Okay. I, yeah, I just I wanted to touch on that because you had brought it up. But I mean, I have a ton of other questions, but basically I, I just got to get the book, I guess, you know, because... <laughs> Otherwise, I could think of things. Did you have like one more question? Or? Uh, well, I wondered how many um, straight women like transsexuals. Oh no, I'm not not at all. No, no, mm -hmm. they find that they're very disconcerting. Really? Okay, see, because I'm always straight I, women. I find are, straight women are friends with transsexuals. They like to be friends, but in terms of erotica, they they, they don't ever appear in erotic fantasies. Okay, of women. that's interesting. <laughs> I find them attractive. You know, I mean, I have never met any. Obviously, I've just seen yeah. seen, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, there is some level of attraction there, but then again, I'm I'm truly bisexual, so maybe that's yeah. more why. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's really okay. The main thing. Thanks, thanks, Allison. Uh -huh. I, uh, next time, um, okay. Thanks for doing this. I I will fix that editing, and um, um, at least I will keep reminding people to read, get your book. And uh, for sure, I'm really looking forward to seeing your book. I want to get multiple copies for my friends. So. Um, <laughs> That's a gift of, we want to give to the whole world. So, Ogie, okay, thank you very much during your, uh, the podcast. Do you, do you want to tell people your Facebook or Twitter account address? So we, yeah, you know, on Twitter, I believe I'm Ogie Ogus. So okay. Ogie Ogus. And, and is there a website where they could keep track of your blog or where you could buy your uh, books? I'm on Psychology Today. I have a blog on Psychology okay. Today called Billion Wicked Thoughts, so you can find me there. And any other? Um, uh, I'll, also, there's BillionWickedThoughts.com uh, for our book. Uh, but I don't think that's been updated in a little while. You can buy our book through BillionWickedThoughts.com. It's also, of course, on Amazon. But uh, I do blog posts for Psychology Today. I haven't done any past couple months, but uh, I'm usually pretty regular about that. Okay. Well, I will uh, put those information back on uh, when we uh, ship, send it to everybody through emails. And uh, I'm really looking forward to your books. So 
Thanks for doing this, Augie. Thanks for everyone for listening to the show. And, Yoshi, uh, this has been this is so much fun. Great questions, and I've had a ball. I, I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I got to say before I go, you're one of the few people actually writing back to me, writing email, and I, I really appreciate it because I don't meet too many people in your academic oh, background. And I, really, I, really, I mean, it, I really appreciate it because my, my background is, you know, jerk-off movies for years, and I, 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 I really appreciate it. And you're very kind. You're, you're, oh, you're, Yoshi, you're, you're a fantastic guy. You're, you're, um, you you're a great teacher. <laughs> you're, you're trying to help people, and um, um, I, I think we're all of you. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to work with you, hopefully down the road. And I want, I want everyone to read your book. And, uh, yeah, I think I, I really believe this. You, you are really helping people, you and your uh, side. So thank you very much. And uh, everyone, please read his books. They're fantastic. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks.